sport. Good evening, dear listeners. It's that time of the week, and Dread Time Stories has returned to the airwaves. Hmm. That, sound, that sounds weird. Test one, two? Okay. Anyway, sorry about that. Uh, that's right, we're back. We are getting ready to finish our first season. Our first and probably only actual season, but uh, not because we're cancelled. Uh, in fact, uh, if I'm allowed to continue, it is my intention to continue doing this program until either I, you know, I get bored, I die, or I get kicked off the air. So. Anyway, let's just, uh, fade out that music. So we got about, uh, about... About a week and a half until Halloween. I'm I'm feeling pretty feeling pretty good. Uh, Halloween is objectively the greatest time of the year. Uh, you know, of course, those Christmas fanatics—they don't know what they're talking about. Sorry, not sorry. But uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, we've got a great show lined up tonight. We're going to be our story is going to be the um, an excerpt an excerpt from Sir Walter Scott's novel Red Gauntlet Wandering Willie's Tale Do you have Wandering Willie? If so, consult your doctor uh, And then of course uh, our all-time radio offering tonight will be an adaptation of Wandering Willie's Tale called The Feast of Red Gauntlet So there you go We'll also be talking about we'll also be having episode 8 of the Magnus Archives Burned Out I had it as Burnt Out in the promo post tomato tomato whatever uh and then of course we're gonna have our pod people segment strange doctor weird and uh for new well new to us not new to the world uh believe it or not bumps so that's what you can expect to hear on tonight's show but real quick let's get started with well you know what we're since it's a longer story uh we're going to do the story first and then I'll talk about uh, my Dungeons and Dragons game. Uh, what the hell? Wandering no, no, do not. 
I am still getting to learn this new um, platform for running my audio. Um, it's freeware. Um, so, I you know, free is great, uh, but I'm still getting it. So let's see. Hold on one quick. Wandering Willie's Tale by Sir Walter Scott. This is a LibriVox recording. I'm reasonably sure it should not sound like that. I was going to try and do, you know, see if I could boost the speed a bit. Um, but that just did not sound right. Let's see. Wandering Willie's yeah. tail. Uh, Wandering Willie's tail. Yeah. It's. <laughs> oh, well. You learn something new every day, folks. Anyway, so we're going to uh, get uh, get to it with Wandering Willie's Tale by Sir Walter Scott, one of Scotland's more uh, renowned, most renowned authors, uh, author of Ivanhoe, Red Gauntlet, which I, I know I mentioned. And that there. Uh, so there you have it. So we are going to get ready for Wandering Willie's Tale from Red Gauntlet by Sir Walter Scott. Enjoy the story. are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Addison. Wandering Willie's Tale by Sir Walter Scott. Honest folks like me. How do you ken whether I am honest or what I am? I may be the devil himself or what ye ken. For he is poor to come disguised like an angel of light. And besides, he is a prime fiddler. He played a sonata to Corelli, you can. There was something odd in this speech, and the tone in which it was said. It seemed as if my companion was not always in his constant mind, or that he was willing to try if he could frighten me. I laughed at the extravagance of his language, however, and asked him in reply, if he was fool enough to believe that the foul fiend would play so silly a masquerade. "'Ye can little about it, little about it,' said the old man, shaking his head and beard, and knitting his brows. "'I could tell you something about that.' What his wife mentioned of his being a tale-teller, as well as a musician, 
now occurred to me, and, as you know, I like tales of superstition. I begged to have a specimen of his talent as we went along. It is very true, said the blind man, that when I am tired of scraping therum or singing balance, I whiles make a tale serve the turn among the country bodies, and I have some fearsome aims that make the old Colleen shake on the settle, and the bits of barren skirl on their minnies outfree their beds. But this that I am going to tell you was a thing that befell in our ain house in my father's time. That is, my father was then a hapland's callant, and I tell it to you that it may be a lesson to you that I but a young, thoughtless chap what ye draw up we on a lonely road, for muckle was the dool and care that came o'er to my good sire. He commenced his tale accordingly in a distinct narrative tone of voice, which he raised and depressed with considerable skill, a time sinking almost into a whisper, and turning his clear but sightless eyeballs upon my face as if it had been possible for him to witness the impression which his narrative made upon my features. I will not spare a syllable of it, although it be of the longest. So I make a dash, and begin. Ye mun have heard of Sir Robert Redgauntlet of that ilk, who lived in these parts before the dear years. The country will lang mind him, and our fathers used to draw breath thick if ever they heard him named. He was out with a Highlandman in Montrose's time, and again he was in the hills we Glencairn in the sixteen hundred and fifty twat, and said when King Charles the Second came in, Wa was in sick fever as the laird of Redgauntlet. He was knighted at Lunnon Court with the king's ain sword, and being a red-hot prelatist, he came down here rampaging like a lion, with commission of lieutenancy and of lunacy for what I can, to put down all the Whigs and Covenanters in the country. Wild work they made of it, for the Whigs were as dour as the Cavaliers were fierce and it was which should first tire the other. Red Gauntlet was I for the strong hand, and his name is kenned as wide in the country as Cloverhouses or Tamdaliels. Glen, nor Dargal, nor Mountain, nor Cave could hide the poor hill-folk when Red Gauntlet was out with bugle and bloodhound after them as if they had been same many deal. And truth, when they found them, they did na make muckle mere ceremony than a highlandman we a roebuck. It was just, will ye tack the test? If not, make ready, present, fire, and there lay the recusant. Far and wide, was Sir Robert hated and feared. Men thought he had a direct compact with Satan, 
that he was proof against steel, and that bullets hapt up his buff coat like hailstains from a hearth, that he had a mare that would turn a hair on the side of Carafragon's, a precipitous side of a mountain in Moffatdale, and muckle to the same purpose of Wilkmere anon. The best blessing they wared on him was Deal Scope Weared Gauntlet. He was near bad master to his ain folk, though, and was weel enough liked by his tenants. And as for the lackeys and troopers that raid out to him to the persecutions, as the Whigs called those killing times, they would a drunken themselves blind to his health at any time. Now you are to ken that my good sire lived on Red Gauntlet's ground. They called the place Primrose Now. We had lived on the ground and under the Red Gauntlets since the riding days and long before. It was a pleasant bit, and I think the air is callerer and fresher there than anywhere else in the country. It's all deserted now, and I sat on the broken dark cheek three days since, and was glad I could not see the plight the place was in. But that's all wide of the mark. There dwelt my good sire, Steenie Steenson, a rambling, rattling chill he had been in his young days, and could play a wheel on the pipes. He was famous at hoopers and girders, Oh, Cumberland could not touch him a jockey Latin, and he had the finest finger for the backlog between Berwick and Carlisle. The like of Steenie was another set that they made wigs of, and so he became a Tory, as they called it, which we now call Jacobites, just out of a kind of necessity that he might belong to some side or other. He had nae ill will to the Whig bodies, and liked little to see the blood run, though, being obliged to follow Sir Robert in hunting and hoisting, watching and warding, he saw muckle mischief, and maybe did some that he could not avoid. Now, Steenie was a kind of favourite with his master, and kenned all the folk about the castle, and was often sent for to play the pipes when they were at their merriment. Old Dougal MacCullum the butler, that had followed Sir Robert through good and ill, thick and thin, pool and stream, was specially fond of the pipes, and I gave my good sire his good word with the laird, for Dougal could turn his master round his finger. Wheel, Roon came the revolution, and it had like to a broken the hearts, both of Dougal and his master. But the change was not altogether so great as they feared, and other folk thought for. The Whigs made an unco crawing what they would do with their old enemies, and in special we saw Robert Redgauntlet. But there were o'er many great folks dipped in the same doings to make a spick and span new world. So Parliament passed it o'er easy, 
and Sir Robert, baiting that he was held to hunting foxes instead of covenanters, remained just the man he was. His revel was as lewd, and his hall as wheel-lighted as ever it had been, though maybe he lacked the fines of the nonconformists that used to come to stock his larder and sell it, for it is certain he began to be keener about the rents than his tenants used to find him before, and they behoved to be prompt to the rent day, or else the laird was not pleased. And he was sick on somebody that nobody cared to anger him, for the odds he swore, and the rage that he used to get into, and the looks that he put on made men sometimes think him a devil incarnate. Weel, my good sire was nae manager, no, that he was a very great misguided, but he had another saving gift, and he got twa terms rent in a rear. He got the first brush at Whitsunday put o'er with fair word and piping, but when Martinmas came, there was a summons from the groaned officer to come with your rent on a day precise, or else Steenie behoved to flit. Sarah work he had to get the siller, but he was weel-friended, and at last he got the heel scraped together, a thousand marks. The maist of it was from a neighbour they called Laurie Leprick, a sly tod. Laurie had wealth the gear, could hunt with a hound, and run with a hare, and be Whig, or Tory, Saint, or Senate, as the wind stood. He was a professor in the revolution world, but he liked an arraso at the world, and a tune on the pipes wheel enough for to buy time. And Bonat, he thought he had good security for the siller. He lent my good sire o'er the stocking at Primosno. Away trots my good sire to Red Gauntlet Castle, with a heavy purse and a light heart. Glad to be out of the laird's danger. Weel, the first thing he learned at the castle was that Sir Robert had fretted himself into a fit of the goat because he did no appear before twelve o'clock. It was not altogether for sake of the money, Dougal thought, but because he did not like to put with my good sire up the ground. Dougal was glad to see Steenie and brought him into the great oak parlour and there sat the laird, his leesome lane, excepting that he had beside him a great ill-favoured jackanip that was a special pet of his. A cankered beast it was, and mony an ill-natured trick it played. Ill to please it was, and easily angered, ran about the hale castle, chattering and rolling, and pinching and biting folk, specially before ill-weather or disturbance in the state. Sir Robert called it Major Weir, after the wallock that was burnt, and few folk liked either the name or the conditions of the creature. They thought there was something in it by ordinar, and my good sire was not just easy in mind when the door shut on him, and he saw himself in the room with neighbour but the laird, Dougal McCullum and the Major. 
a thing that hadna chanced to him before. Sir Robert sat, or I should say lay, in a great armchair, wee his grand velvet gown, and his feet on a cradle, for he had baith goot and gravel, and his face looked as gash and ghastly as Satan's. Major Weir sat opposite to him, in a red-laced coat, and the laird's wig on his head, and I, as Sir Robert garned wi pain, the jackanape garned too, like a sheep's head between a pair of tongues, an ill-fared, fearsome couple they were. The laird's buff coat was hung on a pin behind him, and his broadsword and his pistols within reach, for he kept up the old fashion of having the weapons ready, and a horse saddled day and night, just as he used to do when he was able to loop on horseback and sway after any of the hill folk he could get spearings of. Some said it was for fear of the Whigs taking vengeance, but I judge it was just his old custom. He was again not fear anything. The rental book, with its black cover and brass clasps, was lying beside him, and a book of skull-duddery songs was put betwixt the leaves to keep it open at the place where it bore evidence against the good man of Primrose Snow, as behind the hand with his mails and duties. Sir Robert gave my good sire a look, as if he would have withered his heart in his bosom. Ye man can, he had a way of bending his brows, that men saw the visible mark of a horseshoe in his forehead, deep dinted, as if it had been stamped there. Ah, ye come, light-handed, ye son of a tomb whistle, said Sir Robert. Zones up your arm. My good sire, with as good a countenance as he could put on, made a leg, and placed the bag of money on the table we had dash, like a man that does something clever. The lad drew it to him hastily. Is all here, steeny man? Your honour will find it right, said my good sire. Here, Dougal, said the laird. Gistini a tuss of brandy, till I count the cellar and write the receipt. But they were a wheel out of the room, when Sir Robert gied a yellock that garred the castle rock. Back ran Dougal. In flew the liverymen. Yell on yell, gied the laird, ilk ain mere awful than the other. My good sire knew not whether to stand or flee, but he ventured back into the parlour, where all was going hurdy-gurdy, nobody to say, come in, Okay, you. Terribly the lad red for cold water to his feet, and wine to cool his throat, and hell, 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 and his flames was either word in his mouth. They brought him water, and when they plunged his swollen feet into the tub, he cried out it was burning, and folks say that it did bubble and sparkle like a seething cauldron. He flung the cup at Dougal's head, and said he had given him blood instead of burgundy, and sure enough, 
the lass washed clotted blood off the carpet the next day. The jackanape they carved Major Weir, it gibbered and cried, as if it was mocking its master. My good sayer's head was like to turn, he forgot baith cellar and receipt, and downstairs he banged. But as he ran, the shrieks came fainter and fainter. There was a deep-drawn shivering groan, and word gave to the castle that the laird was dead. Weel, away came my good sire, with his finger in his mouth, and his best hope was that Dougal had seen the money-bag and heard the laird speak of writing the receipt. The young laird, now Sir John, came from Edinburgh to see things put to rights. Sir John and his father never greed wield. Sir John had been bred an advocate, and afterwards sat in the last Scots Parliament and voted for the Union, having gotten, it was thought, a rug of the compensations. If his father could have come out of his grave, he would have brained him for it on his own hearthstone. Some thought it was easier counting with the old rough knight than the fair-spoken youngin, but mayor of that anon. Dougal Macallum, poor body, neither grat nor grained, but geared about the house, looking like a curve, but directing as was his duty, or the order of the grand funeral. Now Dougal looked aye war and war, when night was coming, and was aye the last gang to his bed, whilk was in a little round, just opposite the chamber of dais, whilk his master occupied while he was living, and where he now lay in state, as they called it, wheel a day. The night before the funeral, Dougal could keep his own counsel nae longer. He came doon wi his proud spirit, and fairly asked old Hutchin to sit in his room with him for an hour. When they were in the room, Dougal took a tess of brandy to himself, and gave another to Hutchin, and wished him all health and long life, and said that for himself he was near long for this world, for that every night since Sir Robert's death, his silver call had sounded from the state chamber, just as it used to do at nights in his lifetime, to call Dougal to help to turn him in his bed. Dougal said that being alone with the dead on that floor of the tower, for nobody cared to wake Sir Robert or had gauntlet like another corpse, he had never dared to answer the call, for that now his conscience checked him for neglecting his duty. For though death breaks service, said MacCullum, it shall never weak my service to Sir Robert, and I will answer his next whistle, so be you will stand by me, Hutchin. Hutchin had nae will to the work, but he had stood by Dougal in bottle and boil, and he would not fail him at this pinch. So doon the carl sat o'er a stoop of brandy, and Hutchin who was something of a clack, would have read a chapter of the Bible, but Dougal would hear nothing but a blood of Davy Lindsay, which 
was the wear of preparation. When midnight came, and the house was quiet as the grave, sure enough the silver whistle sounded a sharp and shrill, as if Sir Robert was blowing it, and up got the twa old serving men, and tottered into the room where the dead man lay. Hu Chen saw a no at the first glance, for there were torches in the room, which showed him the foul fiend in his ain shape, sitting on the laird's coffin. Or he cooped as if he had been dead. He could not tell how long he lay in a trance at the door, but when he gathered himself, he cried on his neighbour, and getting nay answer raised the hoose, when Dougal was found lying dead within twa steps of the bed where his master's coffin was placed. As for the whistle, it was gain ains and ae, but many a time was it heard at the top of the house on the bartizan, and among the old chimneys and turrets were the howlets of their nests. Sir John hushed the matter up, and the funeral passed over without mere bogeywork. But when all was o'er, and the laird was beginning to settle his affairs, every tenant was called up by his arrears, and my good sire, for the full sum that stood against him in the rental book. Weel, away he trots to the castle to tell his story, and there he is introduced to Sir John, sitting in his father's chair in deep mourning, with weepers and hanging cravat, and a small walking rapier by his side, instead of the old broadsword that had a hundredweight of steel about it, what with blade, shape, and basket hilt. I have heard the communing so often told over that I almost think I was there myself, though I could not be born at the time. In fact, Alan, my companion, mimicked with a good deal of humour the flattering, conciliating tone of the tenant's address and the hypocritical melancholy of the laird's reply. His grandfather, he said, had, while he spoke, his eyes fixed on the rental book, as if it were a mastiff dog that he was afraid would spring up and bite him. "'I wish ye joy, sir, of the head-seat, and the white loaf, and the bread, lordship. Your father was a kind man to friends and followers.' muckle grace to you sir john to fill his shoon his boots i should say for he seldom wore shoon unless it were mules when he had the goat ay steenie quoth the laird sighing deeply and putting his napkin to his een his was a sudden call and he will be missed in the country no time to set his house in order weel prepared godward no doubt which is the root of the matter but left us behind a tangled hesp to wine, Steenie. Hum, hum, we mun go to business, Steenie. Much to do, and little time to do it in. Here he opened the fatal volume. I have heard of a thing they call Doomsday Book. I am clear it has been a rental of backganging tenants. Stephen, said Sir John, still in the same soft sleek tone of voice stephen stevenson or steenson 
ye are down here for a year's rent behind the hand due at last term stephen please your honour sir john i paid it to your father sir john ye took a receipt then doubtless stephen and can produce it stephen indeed i had not time on it like your honour for nay sooner had i set down the cellar and just as his honour sir robert that's gain do it to enter count it and write up the receipt he was ta'en with the pains that removed him that was unlucky said sir john after a pause but ye may be paid it in the presence of somebody i want but a talis qualis evidence stephen i would go o'er strictly to work with no poor man stephen truth sir john there was nobody in the room but dougal mccullum the butler but as your honour kens he has e'en followed his old master very unlucky again stephen said sir john without altering his voice a single note the man to whom ye paid the money is dead and the man who witnessed the payment is dead too and the cellar which should have been to the fort is neither seen nor heard tell of in the repositories how am i to believe all this stephen i dinna ken your honour but there is a bit memorandum note of the very coins for god help me i had to borrow out of twenty purses and i am sure that ilka man there set down will take his great oath for what purpose i borrowed the money sir john i have little doubt ye borrowed the money steenie it is the payment that i want to have proof of stephen the cellar mun be about the host sir john and since your honour never got it and his honour that was canna have ta'en it wi him maybe some of the family may have seen it sir john we will examine the servant stephen that is but reasonable but lackey and lass and page and groom all denied stoutly that they had ever seen such a bag of money as my good sire described what saw well he had unluckily not mentioned to any living soul of them his purpose of paying his rent i queen had noticed something under his arm but she took it for the pipes sir john read gauntlet ordered the servants out of the room and then said to my good sire now steenie you see you have fair play and as i have little doot you ken better where to find the cellar than any other body i beg in fair terms and for your own sake that you will end this fashery for stephen ye man pay or flit the lord forgie your opinion said stephen driven almost to his wit's end i am an honest man so am i stephen said his honour and so are all the folks in the house i hope but if there be a knave amongst us it must be he that tells the story he cannot prove he paused and then added more sternly if i understand your trick sir you want to take advantage of some malicious reports concerning things in this family 
and particularly respecting my father's sudden death, thereby to cheat me out of the money, and perhaps take away my character, by insinuating that I have received the rent I am demanding. Where do you suppose the money to be? I insist upon knowing. My good sire, so everything looked so muckle against him, that he grew nearly desperate. However, he shifted from one foot to another, looked to every corner of the room, and made no answer. Speak out, sir, said the lad, assuming a look of his father's, a very particular ain which he had when he was angry. It seemed as if the wrinkles of his frown made that self-same fearful shape of a horse's shoe in the middle of his brow. Speak out, sir, I will know your thoughts. Do you suppose that I have this money? Far be it bring me to say so, said Stephen. Do you charge any of my people with having taken it? I would be late to charge them that may be innocent, said my good sir. And if there be any one that is guilty, I have no proof. Somewhere the money must be, if there is a word of truth in your story, said Sir John. I ask where you think it is, and demand a correct answer. In hell, if you will, have my thoughts of it, said my good sire, driven to extremity. In hell, with your father, his chicken ape and his silver whistle. Down the stairs he ran, for the parlour was no place for him after such a word, and he heard the laird swearing blood and wounds behind him, as fast as ever did Sir Robert, and roaring for the bailey and the baron officer. Away rode my good sire to his chief creditor, him they called Larry Le Prick, to try if he could make anything out of him. But when he told his story, he got the worst word in his way. Thief, beggar, and diva were the softest terms, and to the boot of these hard terms, Larry brought up the old story of dipping his hand in the blood of God's saints, just as if a tenant could have helped riding with the laird, and that a laird like Sir Robert Redgauntlet. My good sir was by this time far beyond the bounds of patience, and while he and Larry were at deal speed the liars, he was one chancy enough to abuse the prick's doctrine as well as the man, and said things that garred folk's flesh grew that heard them. He was near just himself, and he had lived wi' a wild set in his day. At last they parted, and my good sire was to ride home through the wood of Pitmurky, that is, a foe of black furrows, as they say I ken the wood, but the furrows may be black or white for what I can tell. At the entry of the wood there is a wild common, and on the edge of the common a little lonely change-house that was keepeth then by an hostler wife. They should have called her to be four, and there poor Steenie cried for a mutchkin of brandy, for he had had no refreshment the hale day. Tibby was earnest wee him to take a bite of meat, but he could not think of it, nor would he take his foot out of the stirrup, and took off the brandy wholly at twa draughts, and named a toast at each. The first was the memory of Sir Robert Redgauntlet, and may he never lie quiet in his grave till he had righted his poor bond tenant, and the second 
was a health the man's enemy, if he would but get him back the puck of silly, or tell him what came of it, for he saw the whole world was like to regard him as a thief and a cheat, and he took that worse than even the ruin of his house and hold. On he rode, little caring where. It was a dark night turned, and the trees made it yet darker, and he let the beast take its ain road through the wood. When all of a sudden, from tired and wearied that it was before, the nag began to spring and flee and stand, that my good sire could hardly keep the saddle. Upon the wilt, a horseman, suddenly riding up beside him, said, That's a metal beast of yours, friend. Will you sell him? So saying, he touched the horse's neck with his riding wand, and it fell into its old hey-ho of a stumbling trot. But is spunk soon out of him, I think, continued the stranger, and that is like many a man's courage that thinks he would do great things. My good sire scarce listened to this, but spurred his horse with good e'en to your friend. But it's like the stranger was ain that does not like to yield his point, for ride as steeny like he was a beside him at the self-same pace. At last my good sire, Steeny Steenson, grew half angry, and to say the truth, half feared. What is it that you want with me, friend? he said. If ye be a robber, I have nae money. If ye be a leal man, wanting company, I have nae heart to mirth or speaking. And if you want to ken the road, I scarce ken it myself. If you will tell me your grief, said the stranger, I am one that, though I have been sair miscarred in the world, and the only hand for helping my friends. So my good sire, to ease his ain heart, mere than from any hope of help, told him the story from beginning to end. It's a hard pinch, said the stranger, but I think I can help you. If you could lend me the money, sir, and take a long day, I can nae other help on earth, said my good sire. But there may be some under the earth, said the stranger. Come, I'll be frank with ye. I could lend you the money on bond, but you would maybe scruple my terms. Now, I can tell you that your old laird is disturbed in his grave by your curses and the wailing of your family, and if you dare venture to go to see him, he will give you the receipt. My good sire's hair stood on end at this proposal, but he thought his companion might be some humoursome child that was trying to frighten him, and might end with lending him the money. Besides, he was bold with brandy, and desperate with distress, and he said he had courage to go to the gate of hell, and a stepfather for that receipt. The stranger laughed. Weel, they rode on through the thickest of the wood, when all of a sudden the horse stopped at the door of a great house, and but that he knew the place was ten miles off, my father would have thought he was at Red Gauntlet Castle. They rode into the outer courtyard, through the muckle folding yets, and underneath the old portcullis, and the whole front of the house was lighted 
and there were pipes and fiddles, and as much dancing and deray within, as used to be at Sir Robert's house at Pace and Yule, and such high seasons. They lap up, and my good sire, as seemed to him, fastened his horse to the very ring he had tied him to that morning, when he gave to wait on the young Sir John. God, said my good sire, if Sir Robert's death be but a dream. He knocked at the hall door, just as he was wont, and his old acquaintance, Dougal McCullum, just after his wont too, came to open the door, and said, Piper Steenie, are you there, lad? Sir Robert has been crying for you. My good sire was like a man in a dream. He looked for the stranger, but he was gain for the time. At last he just tried to say, Ah, a doggle drive, or are you living? I thought you had been dead. Never flash yourself wi' me, said Dougal, but look to yourself, and see you take nothing from anybody here, neither meat, drink, or siller, except the receipt that is your ain. So saying, he led the way out through the halls and trances that were well kenned to my good sire, and into the old oak parlour, and there was as much singing of profane songs and barrelling of red wine and blasphemy and skulldudery as had ever been in Red Gauntlet Castle when it was at the blithest. But, Lord, take us in keeping. What a set of ghastly revellers there were that sat around that table. My good sire kenned many that had long before gained to their place, for often that he piped to the most part in the hall of Red Gauntlet. There was the fierce Middleton, and the dissolute Rothers, and the crafty Lauderdale, and Daliel with his bald head and a beard to his girdle, and Earlshall with Cameron's blood on his hand, and wild Bonshaw that tied blessed Mr. Cargill's limbs till the blood sprung, and Dumbarton Douglas, the twice-turned traitor beat the country and king. There was the bloody advocate Mackenyi, who, for his worldly wit and wisdom, had been to the rest as a god. And there was Claverhouse, as beautiful as when he lived, with his long, dark, curled locks streaming down over his laced buff coat, and with his left hand always on his right spool blade, to hide the wound that the silver bullet had made. He sat apart from them all, and looked at them with a melancholy, haughty countenance, while the rest hallooed and sang and laughed, that the room rang. But their smiles were fearfully contorted from time to time, and their laughter passed into such wild sounds as made my good sire's very nails grow blue, and chilled the marrow in his bones. They that waited at the table were just the wicked serving men and troopers that had done their work and cruel bidding on earth. There was the landlord of the Nethertone that helped to take our guile, and the bishop's summoner that they called the deal's rattlebag, and the wicked guardsmen in their laced coats, and the savage highland Amorites 
that shed blood like water and many a proud serving man haughty of heart and bloody of hand cringing to the rich and making them wickeder than they would be grinding the poor to powder when the rich had broken them to fragments and many many more were coming and ganging are as busy in their vacation as if they had been alive sir robert redgauntlet in the midst of all this fearful riot cried with a voice like thunder on steeny piper to come to the boarded where he was sitting his legs stretched out before him and swathed up with flannel with his holster pistols aside him while the great broadsword rusted against his chair just as my good sire had seen him the last time upon earth the very cushion for the jackanape was close to him but the creature itself was not there it was not its hour it's likely for he heard them say as he came forward is not the major come yet and another answered the jackanape will be here betimes the morn and when my good sire came forward sir robert or his guest or the devil in his likeness said weel piper are ye settled with my son for the years run with much ado my father got breath to say that sir john would not settle without his honour's receipt ye shall have that fortune of the pipe steenie said the appearance of sir robert play us up weel huddled lucky now this was a tune my good sire learned for a warlock that heard it when they were worshipping satan at their meetings and my good sire had sometimes played it at the ranting suppers in red gauntlet castle but never very willingly and now he grew cold at the very name of it and said for excuse he had nice pipes wi him mccullum ye lamb of beelzebub said the fearful sir robert bring steenie the pipes that i am keeping for him mccullum brought a pair of pipes might have served the piper of donald of the isles but he gave my good sire a nudge as he offered them and looking secretly and closely steenie saw that the chanter was of steel and heated to a white heat so he had fair warning not to trust his fingers with it so he excused himself again and said he was faint and frightened and had not wind enough to fill the bag then ye mun eat and drink steenie said the figure for we do little else here and it's ill speaking between a foreman and a fasting now these were the very words that the bloody earl of douglas said to keep the king's messenger in hand while he cut the head of maclennan of bombay at the threve castle and put steenie mare and mare on his guard so he spoke up like a man and said he came neither to eat nor drink nor make minstrelsy but simply for his aim to ken what was come of the money he had paid and to get a discharge for it and he was so stout-hearted by this time that he charged sir robert for conscience's sake he had no power to say the holy name and as he hoped for peace and rest to spread no snares for him but just to give him his aim the appearance gnashed its teeth and laughed but it took from a large pocket-book the receipt 
and handed it to Steenie. There is your receipt, ye pitiful cat, and for the money my dog whelp of a son, I go look for it in the cat's cradle. My good sire uttered many thanks, and was about to return, when Sir Robert roared aloud, Stop, thou, thou suck doddling son of a, I am not done with thee. Here we do nothing for nothing, and you must return on this very day twelve months to pay your master the homage that you owe me for my protection. My father's tongue was loosed to a suddenty, and he said aloud, I refer myself to God's pleasure and not to yours. He had no sooner uttered the word than all was dark around him, and he sank on the earth with such a sudden shock that he lost both breath and sense. How long Steenie lay there he could not tell, but when he came to himself, he was lying in the old cuckyard of Redgauntlet Parishon, just at the door of the family aisle, and the scutcheon of the old knight Sir Robert hanging over his head. There was a deep morning fog on grass and gravestone around him, and his horse was feeding quietly beside the minister's twa cows. Steenie would have thought the hall was a dream, but he had the receipt in his hand, fairly written and signed by the old laird. Only the last letters of his name were a little disorderly, written like one seized with sudden pain. Sorely troubled in his mind, he left that dreary place, rode through the mister at Gauntlet Castle, and with much ado he got speech of the laird. Well, ye diva bankrupt, was the first word. Have ye brought me my rent? No, answered my good sire, I have not. But I have brought your honour Sir Robert's receipt for it. How, Sarah, Sir Robert's receipt? You told me he had not given you one. Will your honour please to see it? That bit line is right. Sir John looked at every line and at every letter with much attention, and at last at the date which my good sire had not observed. From my appointed place, he read, this twenty-fifth of November. What? That is yesterday. Fulham thou must have gone to hell for this. I got it from your honour's father, whether he be in heaven or hell, I know not, said Steenie. I will debate you for a warlock to the privy council, said Sir John. I will send you to your master the devil, with the help of a tar-barrel and a torch. I intend to debate my soul to the presbytery, said Steenie, and tell them all I have seen last night. Work of things fitter for them to judge of than a borrowed man like me. Sir John paused, composed himself, and desired to hear the full history, and my good sir told it him from point to point, as I have told it you, neither more nor less. Sir John was silent again for a long time, and at last he said very composedly, Steenie, this story of yours concerns the honour of many a noble family besides mine, and if it be a leasing-making to keep yourself out of my danger, the least you can expect is to have a red-hot iron driven through your tongue, and that will be as bad as scalding your fingers we a red-hot chanter. But yet it may be true, Steenie, and if the money cast up, I shall not know what to think of it. But where shall we find the cat's cradle? There are cats enough about the old house, but
but I think they kitten without the ceremony of bed or cradle. We were best ask Hutchin, said my good sire. He cans all the odd corners about as well as another serving man that is now gain, and that I would not like to name. Ah, weel, Hutchin, when he was asked, told them that a ruinous turret lang disused next to the clock-house, only accessible by a ladder, for the opening was on the outside, above the battlements, was called of old the cat's cradle. There will I go immediately, said Sir John, and he took, with what purpose heaven kens, one of his father's pistols from the hall-table, where they had lain since the night he died, and hastened to the battlements. It was a dangerous place to climb, for the ladder was old and frail, and wanted ain or two runes. However, up got Sir John, and entered at the turret door, where his body stopped the only little light that was in the bit turret. Something flees at him we a vengeance. Mayst dang him back, or bang! gave the knight's pistol, and Hutchian that held the ladder, and my good sire that stood beside him, hears a loud skullock. A minute after, Sir John flings the body of the jackanapes down to them, and cries that the cellar is fund, and that they should come up and help him. And there was the beggar-cellar sure enough, and many are a thing besides that had been missing for many a day. And Sir John, when he had riped the turret-wheel, led my good sire into the dining-parlour, and took him by the hand, and spoke kindly to him, and said he was sorry he should have doubted his word, and that he would hereafter be a good master to him, to make amends. And now, Steenie, said Sir John, although this vision of yours tends on the whole to my father's credit as an honest man, that he should even after his death desire to see justice done to a poor man like you, yet you are sensible that ill-dispositioned men might make bad constructions upon it concerning his soul's health. So I think we had better lay the hail derdom on that ill-deedy creature Major Weir, and say nothing about your dream in the Woodapit murky. You had taen o'er muckle brandy to be very certain about anything, and Steenie this receipt. His hand shook while he held it out. It's but a queer kind of document, and we will do best, I think, to put it quietly in the fire. Odd, but for as queer as it is, it's all the voucher I have for my rent, said my good sir, who was afraid it may be of losing the benefit of Sir Robert's discharge. I will bear the contents to your credit in the rental book, and give you a discharge under my own hand, said Sir John, and that on the spot. And Steenie, if you can hold your tongue about this matter, you shall sit from this time downward at an easier rent. Money thanks to your honour, said Steenie, who saw easily in what corner the wind was. A doubtless, I will be conformable to all your honour's commands, only I would willingly speak with some powerful minister on the subject, for I do not like the sort of summons of appointment which your honour's father... Do not call the phantom my father, said Sir John, interrupting him. Wheel, then, 
the thing that was so like him, said my good sir. He spoke of my coming back to see him this time twelve months, and it's a weight on my conscience. Ah, weel, then, said Sir John, if ye be so much distrust in mind, ye may speak to our minister of the parish. He is a douce man, regards the honour of our family, and the mayor that he may look for some patronage from me. With that, my father readily agreed that the receipt should be burnt, and the laird threw it into the chimney with his ain hand. Burn it would not for them, though, but away it blew up the lum, wi a lang train of sparks at its tail, and a hissing noise like a squib. My good sire gave down to the manse, and the minister, when he had heard the story, said it was his real opinion, that though my good sire had gone very far in tempering with dangerous matters, yet, as he had refused the devil's arrows, for such was the offer of meat and drink, and had refused to do homage by piping at his bidding, he hoped that, if he held a circumspect walk hereafter, Satan could take little advantage by what was come and gain. And, indeed, my good sire, of his ain accord, long forswore both the pipes and the brandy. It was not even till the year was out, and the fatal day passed, that he would so much as take the fiddle, or drink a scabar or tippany. Sir John made up his story about the jackanape as he liked himself, and some believe till this day there was no more in the matter than the filching nature of the brute. Indeed, he'll no hinder some to thread that it was nane of the old enemy that Dougal and Hutchian saw in the laird's room, but only that one chancy creature, the major, capering on the coffin, and that as to the blowing on the laird's whistle that was heard after he was dead, the filthy brute could do that as well as the laird himself, if no better. But heaven kens the truth, will first came out by the minister's wife, after Sir John and her ain good man were bathed in the moulds, and then my good sir, who has failed in his limbs, but not in his judgment or memory, at least nothing to speak of, was obliged to tell the real narrative to his friends, for the credit of his good name. He might else have been charged for a warlock. The shades of evening were growing thicker around us, as my conductor finished his long narrative with this moral. Ye see, Berkey, it is nae chancy thing to take a stranger trouble for a guide when you're in an uncouth land. I should not have made that inference, said I. Your grandfather's adventure was fortunate for himself, whom it saves from ruin and distress, and fortunate for his landlord. Aye, but they had bathed to sup the sust of it sooner or later, said Wandering Willie. What was frusted was near forgiven. Sir John died before he was much over three score, and it was just like a moment's illness. And for my good sire, though he departed in fullness of life, yet there was my father, a young man of forty-five, fell down betwixt the stilts of his plough, and raised never again, and left nae barren but me, a poor, sightless, fatherless, motherless creature, could neither work nor want. 
things gaed well enough at first for sir redgwald redgauntlet the only son of sir john and the eye of old sir robert and wae's me the last of the honourable house took the firm of our hands and brought me into his household to have care of me my head never settled since i lost him and if i say another word about it deal about will i have the heart to play the night look out my gentle chap he resumed in a different tone you should see the lights of buckenburn glen by this time End of Wandering Willie's Tale. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. The casket of Queen Elizabeth I, while on view in Whitehall Palace, London, mysteriously exploded. The coffin was shattered, yet the Queen's body was unharmed. Believe it or not. In a moment... I'll tell you about a fantastic pilgrimage. The pilgrims to Mount Kailas in Tibet indulge in the most fantastic pilgrimages in the world. They must circle the 22,000-foot mountain on their stomachs. They complete each circuit in the bitter cold, and this requires three weeks. Yet many of the pilgrims circle the mountain in this manner a dozen times, alternately rising and prostrating themselves day and night for nine months. Believe it or not. Wandering with his tail from Red Gauntlet by Sir Walter Scott. Uh, and you, you can tell it uses the uh, journey to hell um, trope very well. Little mm-hmm. Swords Myths. But it's neither here nor there. Let's, uh, we can, I think we can kill the music. Anyway, we are well. We're probably going to go a little long tonight, but that's okay. I I have nothing to do. Um, and of course, don't forget that we will be doing a Halloween night special presentation, uh, Dread Time story. Uh, well, it, it'll be a combined effort. I know Paul is planning to rebroadcast the classic Mercury Radio Theater production of War of the Worlds. I know he's planning to do that. I don't know if Kenny's going to contribute. I hope he does. Um, in fact, I, I, if he's listening now, 
you are, of course, extremely free to join me uh, for my portion, even if you do your own. Um, it would be an honor and a pleasure to share the airways with you once more. So there you have it. Um, so we'll try and have some um, <clears throat> details about that by next week. I'm on vacation, so I can put my nose... <coughs> Sorry. Uh, I can put my nose to the grindstone and, and lay some plans, and we will have an announcement uh, no later than Friday, October 29th. That is my last day of vacation, and that will be Kent, that will be uh, the last. Um, it came from Cleveland before Halloween, um, so we will try and have like an itinerary, uh, at least an announcement of. When you can, when we can start, uh, when you can expect us to start, and if not something extensive, definitely at the very least, uh, this is when we're going to start. So anyway, uh, this weekend in my Dungeons and Dragons game, they finally reached uh, where the rift to the elemental plane of air was. And they found uh, various stones that were in the process of becoming air, cris air, uh, air stones. Um, which, as I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, are basically um, lumps of solidified air elemental energy. And Helly Minerva is looking for one, uh, one that he can use for an experiment because he's trying to invent air travel. He'll eventually do it. I think but uh so they get to the rift they look around and eventually they get the, they get the attention of um I'm actually very proud to say I took a monster variant from the crit academy podcast the thunderhawk and kind of juiced it up a bit to make it basically a boss level encounter for you know to use an, a jrpg term and I created the empowered Thunderhawk, and even that was a bit. You know, I I think that what's happening is, um, I'm kind of lowballing or you know highballing, no lowballing what a a difficult encounter for my group's level would be, um, because it was um, a CR8 level encounter, and apparently that's it's kind of like the average encounter for people of their level. So, um. Yeah, uh, anyway, so they fought it. Um, Hallie was kind of the MVP because he managed to get it with um, Tasha's Caustic Brew, which basically covers a creature in caustic acid that deals damage at the start of every one of their turns. Um, but I'll go over this monster real quick if I can find my, my specs. Uh, because what I usually do is whenever I do um, like a homebrew type deal, I, after the encounter, I send the specs of the monster out to my players so they can see this is why I tried to, this is what you went up against. Uh, but anyway, uh, it was a CR8 encounter. If you're not doing, we do milestone leveling, but if you're doing uh, experience, it was worth 3,900 experience. Um, it had multi-attack. It attacks twice, once with its beak and once with its claws. 
and if it's flying, it would it would instead do two claw attacks. Uh, Windrush. I didn't use this ability. I kind of forgot it was there. But uh, basically, if the Empowered Thunderhawk moves and leaves a hostile creature's reach during its turn, uh, that creature has to beat a, a difficulty class DC 15 strength saving throw or be knocked down. And if you're knocked prone, uh, basically, in order to get up, you have to expend half of your um, movement, which can be, you know, make things more difficult. Uh, and then it had its its coup de gras, its electro ball attack, which recharges on a dice roll of a six, on a d six, uh, and basically the uh, thun empowered thunderhawk gathers air elemental energy, uh, creates a ball of lightning and releases it, and it's basically a lightning uh, fireball attack. Um, and because this was an empowered Thunderhawk that had been gaining, first of all, uh, I upped it from a large elemental to a huge elemental. And that basically helps be, uh, basically a huge, you know, like, the size class helps determine the hit die of a creature, which in turn influences their health points. Um, had an AC armor class of 15. Um... And basically, its reaction was discharge. Any creature that touched the Thunderhawk or hits it with a melee attack would take 2d6 lightning damage and can't take reactions until the start of its next turn. And that got Daladin uh, pretty bad because he was trying to, to talk to it using tongues. And he reached out to touch it and he got shocked, lost his grip, and... Daladin's player is like, oh, I cast Feather. It's like, you can't. You don't have reactions for this round. <laughs> and I felt kind of bad, but I did let uh, when when uh, Daladin took his, his damage, he fell on Lulk, our ranger, and so I split the damage between them. So no one took too much damage. I think it was like six damage each. And then finally, as a bonus action, the Empowered Thunderhawk had what I called Siphon Energy. And basically, this bonus action would allow the Empowered Thunderhawk to siphon elemental power from the Rift, which would give it a reroll of its Electro Ball die. And the reason why I did this was, again, it's an Empowered Thunderhawk, it's drawing power from the plane, how do I represent that? From the, from the Rift to Elemental Plane of Error, how do I represent that? Well, it draws power and... It gets a, a re-roll and a, basically a second attempt to recharge its strongest attack. So there you have it, the Empowered Thunderhawk. Thank you very much to Crit Academy for the Thunderhawk variant, monster variant, which I used to build this. Uh, again, you guys are great. Anyway, we're going to get to our next the next part of our program tonight. And... Uh, that is, of course, going to be our episode of the Magnus Archives. We're rapidly approaching double digits of a show that lived to see triple digits. Um, so yeah, episode number eight, Burned Out. 
And of course, we'll have a Ripley's, uh, believe it or not, short coming back. So that will be fun. Anyway, we'll be right back in about half an hour. Uh, enjoy episode 8 of the Magnus Archives. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 8 Burned Out regarding his experiences during construction of a house on Hilltop Road, Oxford. Original statement given March 13, 2007. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I've worked in construction for almost 20 years now, mostly in and around the Oxford area. When my father passed away in 1996, I took over his contracting business and have been working steadily ever since. I can do most anything I'm called on for, but generally specialise in new builds, plumbing and wiring work specifically. And I've got something of a reputation for being available at short notice, so it's not unusual for me to be called in partway through a build to do some work. When I got the job working on a house down Hilltop Road in mid-November, nothing about the situation seemed strange to me. The guy they had doing the wiring had been called for jury duty and they'd lost him for a couple of weeks, so they asked me to step in. I was on another job during the day, but my fiancé Sam was at a conference in Hamburg for a while and we were saving up for the wedding, so I figured I could do it in the evenings. Now, Hilltop Road is quite a secluded street around the Cowley area. There aren't many student houses on it, so it's actually quite a peaceful place, especially after all the kids living there have gone to bed. The house itself had only recently been started, as some dispute over ownership had kept the land locked for years, and when I turned up it was still mostly empty. It had two floors, with a loft that was going to be another bedroom to match the rest of the road. The doors had been fitted, although the locks had not. 
the empty spaces where the windows were due to be still stood vacant, letting in the chill. That side of the road backed onto South Park, with fences marking the bottom of each garden. The garden of this particular house was mostly full of building materials and debris, but I remember that standing over it all was a tree. It was very large and very dead, and not to put too fine a point on it, the thing creeped me right the hell out. It seemed to cast odd shadows, which were dark and clear on even the most overcast of days. But it wasn't the tree that started it, though. No, that happened my third night on the job. It must have been eight or nine in the evening, as it had been dark for a couple of hours. I was working on the ground floor wiring when I heard a knock at the front door. At first I thought it must have been one of the other builders who had forgotten something, but then I realised that there was no lock on the door. Any of the others would have known that and just come right in. I began to feel slightly uneasy when the knock came again. Over the years I've had a few altercations with punks that wanted to cause trouble on my site, so I picked up a hammer as I approached. I did my best to hold it casually, as though I'd just been using it. I opened the door to see an unassuming man in a tan coat. He was quite young, white, maybe mid-twenties, clean-shaven with shaggy chestnut-brown hair. His coat was quite an old cut. It seemed to me he looked like something out of an old Polaroid. He said his name was Raymond Fielding, and that he owned the house. As he spoke, I felt my grip on the hammer tightening, although I have no idea why. I asked him if he had any ID or documents, and he handed over to me what seemed, as far as I could tell, to be the deed to the house, as well as the land beneath, and did indeed list a man named Raymond Fielding as the owner. So I let him in. I apologised for the draft, and said the window panes were being put in over the next few days, but until then it was going to be cold. He didn't respond, just walked over to the empty frame of the back window and stared out into the garden. I tried to get on with my work, keeping one eye on this stranger. Nothing about the situation felt quite right, but he didn't seem to be doing anything suspicious, just standing there, looking into the garden. So I returned my concentration to the wiring. After a minute or two, I became conscious of a sharp, unpleasant smell. I thought maybe I'd wired something up wrong, but no, it smelled like burning human hair. I looked over to where Raymond had been standing, but he was gone. Where he had been, there was just a patch of scorched wooden floor still apparently smouldering and giving off that dreadful stink. I ran to get the fire extinguisher from an adjoining room. I was gone only a few seconds, but... When I returned, the smell was gone, and there was no longer any smoke or fire, just the burn mark on the wooden floor in front of that window. Touching it, I found that it was just as cold as the rest of the floor. I started to clean, and found that the wood below appeared to be undamaged, with just a coating of soot and ashes on top. I had to look around for this Raymond Fielding, but if he was ever truly there, then he was gone now. It was only when I'd finished cleaning up the mark that the true strangeness of the situation began to sink in, and I started to panic. I should probably explain my fear a bit, as it wasn't because of ghosts or phantom smells or anything like that. You see, there is quite a significant history of schizophrenia among the men in my family. My father had it, as did my great-uncle, and in both of their cases it led to suicide. 
I didn't know much about my great-uncle, but I had seen my father's decline firsthand. It had started shortly after his divorce from my mother, although thinking about it, it was perhaps the early stages that had exacerbated the problems in their marriage. Regardless, he began to spend a lot of time locked in his study doing his work. I was maybe 24 or 25 at the time, and still living at home. I was working with my dad, doing much the same job as I do now, and it was at this point I had to take on more and more of the actual running of the business, since my father was beginning to prioritise his work over his actual job. His work turned out to be fractals. He became obsessed with them, seemed to spend all his time drawing them, staring at them, measuring the patterns they created. He would talk to me for hours about the maths behind them, and tell me that he was on the verge of a great truth. He was going to shake mathematics to its foundations once he figured out this truth hidden in those cascading fractal patterns. One day, I returned home to find my father staring through the blinds in terror. He claimed that someone was following him, told me that they were planning to stop his work. I asked him who it was, but he shook his head violently and said I'd know him when I saw him, because all the bones are in his hands. I tried to get him help, of course I did, but he refused to take any medication as he said it interfered with his work. And he wasn't dangerous, so I couldn't have him committed. I knew it was only a matter of time before he hurt himself, and sure enough the day came when he wouldn't answer the knocks at his study door. I broke in to find him lying dead in a pool of blood, with deep gouges along his wrists and arms. The walls were covered in fractal drawings. Every surface was piled high with them, and pencil shavings littered the floor. The inquest ruled his death a suicide, although the coroner wasn't able to identify the tool that had made the cuts on his arms. Why he had such a look of fear on his face. This is why the apparent disappearance of Raymond Fielding worried me so much. I was younger than my father had been, but still had that possibility within me. This train of thought was likely why I wasn't paying as much attention as I should have been, where I was stepping and I slipped on the wet section of flooring that I had just cleaned. I fell forward, hitting my head badly. I don't think I was unconscious for more than a few seconds, but when I woke up I was bleeding from a deep cut on my temple. I tried to make it to my car, but I was so dizzy just standing up that it was clear driving was out of the question. So I called for an ambulance. It arrived quickly and it took me to the John Radcliffe Hospital. When I got there they were very responsive and quickly determined that I had quite a severe concussion, so I was kept overnight for observation. I told my doctor everything about my encounter with Raymond Fielding. If it was early signs of any developing schizophrenia, I wanted to know as soon as possible. The doctor listened closely and said it was unlikely, as it would be surprising if I developed full hallucinations so abruptly, but that they were keeping me under observation. I noticed as I was explaining my experience, the nurse taking my blood pressure seemed to be listening intently, though she left before I could ask her why. I stayed in that hospital for another two days. Sam wanted to cut short her trip when she heard about my concussion, but I told her that any real danger had passed and I should be fine until the end of her conference so I was mostly on my own for that time. It was the morning before she was due to return that I saw the nurse again. I'd just had the news that the tests had all come back fine, so I was being discharged, and she came in to give me a final check. 
She asked me if I was sure the man who had come to the house on Hilltop Road had called himself Raymond Fielding. I told her yes, and that I'd even seen his signature on the deed to the land, but that I didn't know any of the history of the place. She got very quiet and sat down. This nurse was an older woman, Malaysian, I think, and I would have guessed in her fifties, though I didn't ask. She said her family had lived on Hilltop Road for a long time now, and she knew the place I was working. In the 1960s, the house that had stood there had belonged to a man named Raymond Fielding. He was a devout churchgoer and had used it as a halfway house on behalf of the local diocese, looking after teenage runaways and young people with mental problems. The neighbourhood apparently hadn't liked it, as its residents often got into trouble and Hilltop Road had started to get something of a reputation for it. Nobody ever said a word against Raymond himself, though, who by all accounts was such a kind soul as to be almost universally beloved. Nobody was sure exactly when Agnes moved in. Some even said she was Raymond's actual daughter, as the two of them looked something alike and she was younger than most of the other kids living there. She couldn't have been more than eleven when she turned up, and didn't really talk, other than to tell people her name if asked. Everyone just started to notice this child with mousy brown pigtails staring at them through the windows of Raymond's house. As far as anyone could tell, that's all she ever seemed to do, stare at people from the windows. It was unsettling, but no one had any real problem with it. Over the next few years, the kids at the halfway house stopped causing problems in the area around Hilltop Road. It wasn't an obvious change, but gradually the people living there were seen less and less. Raymond was still there and seemed perfectly cheery. If anyone asked him about a resident who hadn't been around for a while, He'd explained that they'd moved on, or found a place of their own, and no one really cared enough to follow up on his information. Soon the only people living in that old house were Agnes and Raymond. Then Raymond disappeared as well. Agnes must have been 18 or 19 by this point, and still hardly ever talked. When she was questioned about what happened to Raymond, she simply said he had gone away, and that the house was hers. People got a bit worried at that, and the police conducted a small investigation, but the house had been legally signed over to Agnes, and there was no sign of any foul play. No sign of Raymond either, for that matter. And so the years passed, and Agnes lived on in that old house. Hardly ever seemed to leave it, just watched from the windows. Folks in Hilltop Road learned it was best not to keep pets, as they tended to vanish. Then... In 1974, Henry White goes missing. Five years old and the search turned up nothing. People always whispered about Agnes, but now the whispers got nasty. Nasty enough that when smoke is seen pouring out of the old fielding house a week after little Henry disappeared, no one did a thing. No one phoned the fire brigade or tried to help. They just watched. Agnes must not have phoned for assistance either, as by the time the fire trucks arrived there was nothing left to save. Through it all, nobody saw any sign of life from within the building. No screaming, no movement, nothing but the roaring of the flames. When the fire was finally put out, they did find human remains. But it wasn't Agnes, nor was it Henry White. The only body they found was that of Raymond Fielding. All that was left was a badly charred skeleton, missing its right hand. That was the history of the place as the nurse told it to me. 
Once the rubble had been cleared away, the land had become tied up in legal complications relating to the ownership, and had remained so until earlier last year. She asked me not to let anyone else know she'd been talking about it, as she didn't want people to think she had been spreading stories. I told her I'd keep quiet, and she left. I didn't see her again, and was discharged soon afterwards. I rested at home for a couple of days, but I find forced inactivity very boring, and my head was feeling fine, so I decided to go back to work. By all rights, I should probably have avoided returning to Hilltop Road, but I found myself resenting how the house made me feel. I didn't believe in ghosts, to be honest, I'm still not sure I do, and I'd been assured by the doctor that I wasn't displaying any other symptoms of schizophrenia, so there was no reason for me to feel this gnawing apprehension. I convinced myself that the only way to banish the feeling was to return and finish the job that I started. So that's what I did, although I was careful to work only in daylight now, and tried to avoid being alone. Even so, there were occasional moments when I would find myself the only one working in a room, or when silence fell across the building. And then I would smell it again, that whiff of burnt hair, or catch a glimpse of brown pigtails disappearing around a corner. As the job drew towards a close, it became harder to avoid working there after dark, until I lost track of time completely one afternoon, and looked up to see that not only had night fallen, but I was the only one left in the building. Almost as soon as I realised this, I began to sweat. At first I thought it was nerves, or even a panic attack at finding myself alone, but it was the heat. This warmth that, that seemed to start in my bones and radiate out through me. I took off my hat and jacket, but I just got hotter and hotter until it felt like I was cooking from the inside. I tried to scream, but I couldn't find my breath. I couldn't move. I was burning up. There was a knock at the door and the feeling abruptly vanished. I was cold again, lying on the bare floor. I struggled to my feet as the knock came again. My hand shook as I opened it. By now I didn't know what to expect. Would it be Raymond again, Agnes, or some other thing to announce the end of my sanity? What I did not expect was a Catholic priest. He was short and a bit portly, with close-cropped hair and deep smile lines around his mouth. He introduced himself as Father Edwin Burroughs and told me that Annie had asked him to pay the place a visit. I didn't know any Annie and told him so, and he seemed slightly confused, said she worked as a nurse at the John Radcliffe Hospital. This allayed my fears enough that I let him in, and I asked him if he was some sort of exorcist. Father Burroughs smiled and told me yes, that's exactly what he was. So I told him my story as he went around examining the house. He nodded as I went through what happened, occasionally asking a question about what had been said or how I had felt. Finally, he seemed satisfied and said he'd do what he could. He explained that exorcism was really only for demons, and it wasn't something he could do to ghosts, at least not officially. Whether or not ghosts actually existed was apparently just as divisive a question within the church as outside of it. But he would go through some blessings and see if he could help. He asked me to wait outside while he worked, so I headed into the back garden and waited. As I stood there in the cold, my eyes fell on the tree. That creepy damn tree. I don't know why, but at that moment I felt an intense, maddening anger at that tree. 
I picked up a crowbar that lay on a nearby pile of wood, and drawing my arm back, I swung it at the trunk, burying it with all my might. I felt something warm and wet spray out where I had hit it. Sap? No, it didn't feel like sap. I turned on my torch to see blood flowing from the wounded tree. It ran down the crowbar and dripped onto the earth, running in rivulets. As it reached the roots, I saw something else in my torch's light. Curling up from the base of that tree were old, black scorch marks. At that moment, I made my decision. It was easy. Like destroying this tree was the only thing to do, the only path to follow. I found a long chain among the building materials in the garden and wrapped it around the still bleeding trunk, then attached the ends to my car. It took me less than a minute to pull it down, and there was no more blood. When the tree lay on its side, uprooted and powerless, I gazed into the hole where it had sat, and noticed something lying there in the dirt. Climbing down, I retrieved what turned out to be a small wooden box, about six inches square, with an intricate pattern carved along the outside. Engraved lines covered it, warping and weaving together, making it hard to look away. I opened the box, and sitting inside was a single green apple. It looked fresh, shiny, with a coat of condensation like it had just been picked on a cool spring morning. I picked it up. I wasn't going to eat it, I'm not that stupid. But more than bleeding trees or phantom burning, this confused me. As I took it out of the box, though, it began to turn. The skin turned brown and bruised and started to shrivel in my hand. Then it split. And out came spiders. Dozens, hundreds of spiders erupting from this apple that was rotting right before my eyes. I shrieked and dropped it before any of them could touch my arm. The apple fell to the ground and burst in a cloud of dust. I backed away quickly and waited until I was sure all of the spiders had left before retrieving the box. I smashed it with a crowbar and threw the remains into a skip. Father Burroughs returned shortly afterwards. He told me he'd done his prayers and hoped that it would be some help. If he noticed the felled tree, he didn't ask any questions about it. Instead, he just handed me his business card and told me to give him a call if there were any further problems. The house didn't feel any different. But there was no smell of burnt hair, no heat or ghosts or any weirdness I could see. I worked on that house for another week. and I don't know if it was the father's prayers or my uprooting the tree but I didn't encounter anything else unusual during my time there. After that, my part of the job was finished. I haven't been back to Hilltop Road since. Statement ends. Ah, head trauma and latent schizophrenia, the ghost's best friends. Aside from excessive indulgence in psychoactive drugs, it seems to me that there is simply no better way to make contact with the spirit world. Still... Glibness aside, the history of 105 Hilltop Road does bear investigation, and while I trust Mr. Lensick's testimony of his own experiences about as far as I can throw a bleeding tree, there is a note in the file mentioning that Father Edwin Burroughs put down his own version of these events in Statement 0218011.
while I have yet to locate that particular file in the chaos that passed for Gertrude Robinson's archive, the suggestion that there may be external corroboration does lend some potential credence to Mr. Lensick's wild tale. No other workers on the building site at the time reported any disturbances like the ones reported by Mr. Lensick. Martin was unable to find the exact date the original house was built, but the earliest records he could find listed as being bought by Walter Fielding in 1891. It was inherited by his son Alfred Fielding in 1923, and then by his grandson Raymond Fielding in 1957. There was no record of it being used as a halfway house, certainly not one connected to the local Catholic diocese, although the Church of England records for the area that Sasha got access to were unfortunately incomplete. The older residents of Hilltop Road back up the account given by the nurse Anna Kasuma, as related here. Tim managed to organise an interview with Mrs Kasuma, but apparently she could provide no information beyond what she told to Mr Lensick. She did admit, though, to asking Father Burroughs to have a look at the house, as she was worried about it, and had seen him perform exorcisms before. There doesn't seem to be any print evidence of what happened to the house, no news stories or similar regarding the fire, but one resident did provide a photograph of the house in flames. Raymond Fielding's obituary briefly reported his death as having been due to a house fire, and lords his work with troubled youth, but gives no details about either. Agnes remains something of a mystery, as we have not been able to find any definitive proof that she even existed. Except... We cannot prove any connection, but Martin unearthed a report on an Agnes Montague, who was found dead in her Sheffield flat on the evening of November 23, 2006, the same day Mr. Lensick claims to have uprooted the tree. She had hanged herself. Her age is given at 26, which doesn't match up at all, but tied by a chain to her waist was a severed human hand, a right hand. Its owner was never identified, but the coroner was apparently quite perplexed, as tissue decay would seem to indicate that the hand's original owner must have died at almost the exact same time as Agnes. Two families have lived in the house since this statement was originally made, but no further manifestations have been reported on Hilltop Road. End recording. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell, Mike LeBeau, and Murray Porter. And directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Truth is stranger than fiction. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. 
Ludwig Weber, an innkeeper of Russitz, Austria, was so powerful that he could raise a 100-pound cask to his lips at the age of 80. He drank a total of 50,000 quarts of wine in his lifetime. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the church inspired by a footstool. The architecture of St. John's Church in London, England, was inspired by a footstool. It was built by Thomas Archer for Queen Anne, who, because she was preoccupied with affairs of state, simply kicked over a wooden footstool and told the architect, go build me a church like that. The four towers of St. John's Church were Archer's efforts to create a structure like an overturned footstool. Believe it or not. And we're back, I think. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was episode 8 of the Magnus Archives, Burned Out. Again, we're starting to see uh, more lore being developed. And uh, as far as I know, because again, I kind of drifted off listening to it, so I never f even finished the first season. But as far as I know, uh, you're not going to see any of the any major, you know, you'll see, like, little bits of lore kind of starting to establish this, and then, uh, you know, after the first season, things start to get real. Anyway, uh, we're gonna get ready to go to our, um, old-time radio offering. Tonight's old-time radio selection is the February 27th, 1944 broadcast of The Weird Circle, The Feast of Red Gauntlet, which was an adaptation of Wandering Willie's Tale. And I gotta say, I think this turned out really well. It cuts out a lot of the superfluous material, tightens the narrative, focuses on the important parts, um, and tells tells a pretty compelling story. My only real issue, um, uh, with this, <laughs> well, it's not an issue, it's just more of an amusing uh, amusing note is <laughs> they refuse to say hell in this story. <laughs> like, he's in the other place! <laughs> you know, it's just like, say it. <laughs> no, you're not going to explode. Uh, but, eh, 1940s radio, what are you going to do, right? Right? Anywho, we're going to get to it with uh, the February 27th, 1944 radio broadcast of uh, 
The Weird Circle. The Feast of Red Gauntlet. Oh, what am I doing? What am I doing? Uh, there we go. Uh, so, uh, yeah. This is a great story. This is one of my favorite Weird Circle episodes. Uh, this was one of the, the things that, um... We did back when we were doing any media weekly radio. We did our first Halloween special, and this was one of my offerings for that. Um, because Rob Poole, who was one of my original co hosts on My Check Radio, really hadn't been into old time radio. And I always tell people look, I mean, it's like anime, there's something for everyone in old time radio. And you know what the best part of old time radio is? You don't have to pay anything to engage. Uh, most of this stuff is um, in the public domain, it's free. It's a free hobby, folks. And, again, there's something for everyone. You like mysteries? There's mysteries. You like horror? Hello! Dreadtime stories? There's horror. There's fantasy. There's, you know, science fiction. Oh my god, there's science fiction. There's literally something for everyone. Anyway, we're gonna get to it. We're gonna run a little long tonight. Uh, but that's okay. I've got nothing else to do, do you? We'll be right back after the Feast of Red Gauntlet. We are met to call from out of the past stories, strange and weird. Bellkeeper, toll the bell so that all may know we are gathered again in the Weird Circle. that the swinging branches recall tonight. But I never hear their mournful movement without my thoughts gone backwards. Backwards to the doer years, the terrible times of Sir Robert Red Gauntlet. This countryside will long remember him, for our fathers used to draw breath thick when they heard him named. I, Steenie Steenson, was his tenant. And I and every tenant man in Sir Robert Red Gauntlet's ground 
had to join the master in his killing raids on the liberal Whigs. That night, Red Gauntlet hung three neighbor men I knew. My heart was like a stone, for I held no ill will against the men myself. And worse luck would have it, I was the last man to leave the frightful scene, for Davy, my old horse, went lame on me. The three dead men hung high over my head, the gibbet creaking and swaying as I looked over Davy. And all of a sudden, a stranger rode up through the woods, a lean, gaunt creature he was, in loose, ill-fitting clothes, and his white mare made no sound as she stepped on dry branches. I stood frozen a minute, and then somehow I plucked courage to say, What are ye, man or spirit? I'm a stranger to you, though I'm not a stranger in these woods. Do you know where you are, Steenie Steenson? Not rightly, sir. We rode and rode, and I drank a, a deal of brandy for a... I, I didn't like the business we're about, and I paid little attention to our direction. This is the wood of the dead, Steenie. Uh-huh. If you kill in these woods... And you linger long enough for me to find you. Then you must give an accounting. I'll have you know, sir. I, I had no part in the hanging of those three men. They rust their souls. But your very presence gave consent. Did you protest? I'm a tenant of Red Gauntlet. My fathers and forefathers lived on his land. And it's the unwritten law, sir. We think and do as the Red Gauntlets. But I've no stomach for killing men on account of their opinions. Men like you, of weak wills, Steenie Steenson, let the red gauntlets of the world rule with bloody hands. But you're in the wood of the dead tonight. And to these three men who hang on the gibbet, you must make some restitution. Well, sir, and how can I do anything now for dead men? They leave families, Steenie. Young ones and wives. You have a bag of silver hidden in your chimney at home. You must divide it among the three widows. But how can I do that, man? The money's for my rent. I've little gift for saving, and I'm two terms back now for the rent due to Red Gauntlet. There's just the right amount of the bag, and it's all the money I have, sir. How you will pay your rent must be your own worry. But you shall not leave these woods tonight alive unless I know that you mean in your heart to divide that bag of silver among the three widows. Well, I'm no man to be blind to the corner the wind blows in. I don't know who you are or what you are, stranger. Maybe I'd soon not know. But I can feel you mean every word you say. I'll divide the money among the three families. Good. We'll meet again, Steenie Steenson. Someday. A very good night to you. And a good night, stranger, to... I started to say it, but the horseman and horse had vanished, fairly melted into the woods before I could finish my words. Not a sound I made as the white mare stepped with a fine gait on the dead dry twigs. But keep my word I did to the ghostly stranger. The very next morning, I went to the three widows and gave them the money. Now came the problem for the rent, for Sir Robert Red Gauntlet was no man to be put off for more than two terms, and I was due to pay him that very day. Now, I'd, I'd done many a man a favor in the countryside by playing the bagpipes at weddings and all that sort of merriment. And I was what you might call in demand. So I went to the friends my bagpipes had made for me and asked them for the loan of some silver. From about 20 sources, I picked up the money to make the full amount. And away I trudged to Red Gauntlet's castle with a heavy purse. The old serving man, Dougal McCallum, met me in the great hall. 
He seemed beside himself with worry as he said, Steamy, the master's in an evil mood for he's suffering hard with the gout. Well, pay the rent a must, gout or no gout. Uh, by the way, Dougal, is Sir Robert's pet monkey, what's his name, there with him today? Aye, aye, the monkey made you weird sitting like an evil spirit in his little red lace jacket. Perched on the master's shoulder. Ah, uh, it's afraid he'd be. I hate that little jackanapes. Well, come, man. I'd like to get this business over. Uh, this way, Steenie. I've never seen the master look so bad. But don't you tell him so. Come in, come in. Don't be so slow about it. What are you, snails crawling in? Just you, jackanapes. I'll give you the back of my hand. Dougal. Take the monk off my shoulder. Aye, sire. The major's full of chatter today. Come, monk. Uh, uh, honey, sit down like a good little beast on your pillow. Uh, Sir Robert, Steeny Steenson's come to pay his rent. Yes, Sir Robert. Here, here I am, monk. I see you, man. I see you. Are you come right-handed, you son of a thistle? Uh, no, Sir Robert. The rent for two terms is right here in the bag. Well... I'm surprised to get it all at once, eh? Oh! Oh, this blasted gout is enough to drive a man to make a pact with the devil himself. Oh, don't say things like that, Sir Robert. The evil one might hold you to it. <laughs> you hypocrite, Steenie. You know as well as I do that everyone believes I've already made a pact with the devil. And everyone's sure of where I'm going when I die. I never listen to gossip, Sir Robert. Uh, now, if you'll count the silver and give me the receipt, I I'd best be going. All right, Steenie. Dougal, take Steenie to the hall and give him a cup of brandy while I count the silver and make out the receipt. Come along, Steenie, with some right fine brandy just down from Edinburgh. I'm never a man, Dougal, to refuse a sample. Oh, my feet! It's all blasted gout. Dougal! Hey? Bring me a bowl of cold water. Oh, the master is having a Hey, you again. idiot! Oh, my heart. My heart. What's the matter? What can I do, Dougal? Is the master worse? Steeny, Steeny, run, man. Get on your horse and fly for the doctor. I'll do that. Sir Robert looks bad to me. Out of Red Gauntlet's castle, I rode as fast as I could and rode hard to bring Dr. McKenney. I felt in my bones this was no light illness of red gauntlets. The doctor and I were soon back in the castle. And as we opened the door, I thought how uncommonly quiet it was. Then old Hutchin, the butler, come toward us. You're too late, Steenie, with the doctor. Steenie and I rode as fast as we could. What happened, man? The worst. Sir Robert Red Gauntlet is dead. Heaven keep his soul. Well, well. That's sad news, Hutchin. Of course, I'll have to confirm the death and make out the proper papers. Yes, sir, I know. This way, please, sir. I tiptoed out and left that place of death, for I knew I'd only be in the way. And so deep was I in the thoughts of Red Gauntlet's end that I was a fair way home when of a sudden I remembered. Hadn't I left the silver for the rent there and never got a receipt? But then I considered old Dougal was a witness to the fact that I'd brought the money, and in due time it would all be put to rights. And so the matter would have been had not the uncanniest bad luck happened the night before Red Gauntlet's funeral. That night, old Dougal invited Hutchins to his room for a round of drinks before they went to bed. Hutchins told me more than once about that strange night. Hadley was he seated in the room when Dougal said, Hutchins, we've both served the dead master a long, long time. Aye, 
And though Red Gauntlet may have used an iron hand to others, he was good to us. Well, here's long life to you, Dougal. Thank you, Hutchin. But I know I'm not long for this world. Oh, come now. Don't let the master of death make you morbid. It's not to the morbid. But you know the master and I were more like two brothers. I've followed Sir Robert through good and ill, through pool and stream. I've followed with a blind devotion. And though the master goes to the evil place, I too would have to follow. And I think it won't be long. Man, man, get hold of yourself. I'll begin to think Sir Robert's death has turned your reason. You're sure to think that when you hear what I have to tell you. As you know, Red Gauntlet lies in state in his own room. And I've been sleeping as usual in the room which adjoins his. If you remember, Sir Robert used to blow on his small silver whistle for me to come and turn him over in his bed. Well, Hutchin, as true as I'm alive this minute, every night since Red Gauntlet's death, I've heard that whistle. I've heard that silver whistle blow of the night. Dougal, you make me hair stand on end. Man, you must have dreamed such a thing. I did not dream it. I heard the silver whistle. And so frozen was I with terror that I did not stir. But in the daytime, my conscience hurt me. For I can't let even death break my service to Sir Robert. Listen! There! There it is! Red Gauntlet's silver whistle. The Lord keep our souls. It's an awful song. I've got to go, Hutchin. I've got to answer Red Gauntlet's call. Just as I used to. But, man, you cannot be turning the corpse over in its bed. I've got to go. Stand by me, Hutchin. At least go with me to Red Gauntlet's door. I have no will for such doings, but I can't fail you in a pinch like this. Come, then. The master is impatient. Never did this hall seem so long, Dougal. Aren't we two adult-headed old men to be answering a silver whistle blown by a dead man? And on second thoughts, Dougal... Maybe we only imagined we heard the whistle. We did not dream it, Hutchin. Oh, well. We're near to the master's bedroom now. A dread opening the door. Aye. The light of the candles might reveal to us more than we want to see. But open the door we must. Dougal, look. The dead master lies just as we left him. Dead and quiet. But Hutchin, look. Look on the foot of the bed. It's the foul fiend himself, the evil one. shocked were Dougal and Hutchin by the sight of the evil one sitting there at the foot of Red Gauntlet's bed that they fainted dead away. Finally, when Hutchin came out of the faint and gathered his wits about him, he found old Dougal lying in a heap dead. Dougal had joined Red Gauntlet in the last long journey. Now, when I heard about Dougal's death, I felt sad indeed, but I'm afraid I felt more pity for myself than anyone, for Dougal was the only witness to the silver I'd left for the two terms of rent. Now, Sir Robert Red Gauntlet's son, Sir John, had come up from London for the funeral and to put things to right. In due time, he called me to come to see him, for I knew for certain he would. I stood before him in the great hall, and Sir John said, Steeny Steenson, uh, you're down here for two terms' rent. That's a whole year. Uh, 
Please, Your Honor, Sir John, I paid it to your father. Oh, you got a receipt then, Dr. Steeny, and can produce it? Indeed, I hadn't time, sir. For no sooner had I set down the silver and Sir Robert was drawing the bag to him when he was taken with the pains it took him out of this wall. Oh, that's very unlucky. But perhaps you paid it in the presence of somebody. Aye, Sir John. There was nobody in, in the room but uh, Dougal McCallan. And as Your Honor knows, he soon followed the dead master. Very unlucky again, Steeny. Very strange to me that no one has told me that a bag of silver was found on the table after my father died. Uh, perhaps the butler Hutchins knows something about it, sir. All right, I'll see what he has to say. Hutchin! Hutchin! Yes, Sir John? Hutchin, I wonder that I was never told about a bag of silver left by Steeny Steenson the day my father died. It should have been found on this very table by which my father had been sitting. But we found no bag of silver, sir. I came running at once when the master cried out. And it was I who put the room to rights after we'd carried out the body. But it did leave the money right there on the table. Well, Hatchin, there's only one thing to do. Call all the servants together and question them. Hmm. And if I can find no proofs that the bag of silver was stolen, what story then are you going to tell me, Steeny? Where will you suggest we look for the money? In the evil place, if you want my opinion, sir. In the evil place with your father and his silver whistle. I paid the money for the whole year's rent, and there's an end of it. Oh, no, it's not. You will produce the rent or the receipt for the rent by this time tomorrow, or I shall have you put in chains. Now get out. I rode away from the castle fairly seen red. Here I was, the same Steeny Steenson who only a few weeks before had been the most popular piper in the countryside, the toast of every feast and frolic. And now, of a sudden, men would be calling me names, a thief, a cheat, and worse. I rode on and on, little care in where my horse Davy led me. Finally, I realized I was in a thick patch of wood. And I noticed of a sudden that beside me was riding a stranger, the lean gaunt man in ill-fitting clothes, on a white mare. A white mare that made no sound as she stepped on dry branches. Just as the night of the hanging, I said, What are ye, man of spirit? I'm your friend, Steeny. I've come to help you. Unless you can lend me money. There's no other help you can give me in this world. But there may be some help in another world. Now, I can tell you this. Sir Robert Redgauntlet is disturbed in his grave by your curses and black thoughts of him. And if you will venture to see him, he will give you the receipt. Stranger, I have the courage to go to the very gates of the evil place and a step further for that matter, for that receipt. All right then, Steenie. Turn sharply to the left. <laughs> Make your horse wind in and out of that thick settlement of black fur. Here we are. But I... But I can't believe no one eyes, sir. We're in the courtyard of Red Gauntlet's castle. Where the estate is miles away from this place. Yours is not the question, Steeny. Go to the castle door. Dougal will let you in. Dougal? Why, the man's as dead as a mackerel. What, what place am I in, sir? Courage, courage, Steeny. Remember, you must get that receipt. Go to the door. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Go away. Well. For it'll soon be dead myself as the bay in the fix I'm in. Well, Davy, me good horse. <laughs> Goodbye. If I don't come back, you'll know I've gone to... Heavenly days. There's Dougal standing there waiting at the door for me. Dougal. 
Dougal, man. I never thought to see you alive again. I'm not alive, Steenie. Aye? Now listen carefully. When you're inside Red Gauntlet's castle, take nothing from anybody there, neither meat or drink or silver, for they will bind you to that unholy party. Take nothing except that receipt which is your own. Come. <laughs> Ghastly scene of revelers. There's the fierce Middleton, and the dissolute Ross, and the crafty Lauderdale, and the wild Bunshaw, and all the other wicked ones I've known and played the bagpipes for at feast. And every one of them dead now. And yet I see them laughing and reveling there. But take note, Steenie, and death has in life. It's my master, Sir Robert Red Gauntlet, who has the place of honor at the feast. Hello, friends. It's Steenson. Look who's come to visit us. Close. Hey, yes, sir. How's your health, sir? <laughs> Did you hear that, man? How's my health? Why, Sidney, it's as bad as could be expected. Well, I, I'm sorry, sir. But where's Major, your monkey? It seems strange to see you without your pet, sir. Here is a little cushion ready for the monk. Before nightfall tomorrow, the little ape will be with me. Well, no, yeah. let's get to business. You've come here for that receipt for your year's rent, haven't you, Steenie? Uh, yes, sir, and if you'll kindly give it to me, I'll go. Oh, but first you must play me a tune of the bagpipes. Dougal! Dougal, your limo Beelzebub! Bring Steenie the pipes I've been keeping for him. Robert, sir, Robert. This scene in your awesome presence have fairly taken my breath away. I fear I have none left to play the pipes, sir. Then you must eat and drink, Steenie, for we do little else here. And it's likely to be ill-speaking between a full man and a fasting one. I've not come to eat or drink, sir, but simply for what's known. Uh, give me that receipt. All right, you pitiful cur. All right, here and now. Dougal, bring me the quill. I have everything ready, sir. Good. Here, here. This 25th of November, from my appointed place, I, Sir Robert Red Gauntlet, to assert that Steeny Steenson paid me in silver one year's rent. Sir, Steeny's your receipt. Ah, thank you, sir. And tell my rogue of a son to go look for the bag of silver in the cat's cradle. In the cat's cradle, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. No, 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 not so fast, my man. I am not done with you. Here we do nothing for nothing. On a year this very day, you must return and play the pipe for me. That will be your payment and my pleasure. I didn't care a rap for your pleasure, sir. I'd affirm myself only to the good Lord. At the mention of the holy name, it seemed to me that the whole earth shook, and I lost both breath and scent. When I came to it, it was early morning. I was in the woods, a full five miles from home. And Davy, my horse, was feeding nearby. And then I laughed. And I thought, what a nightmare of a dream I had. But then, I realized I was holding something tight in my hands. And I looked. And I found a held a receipt for the rent, signed by Sir Robert Redgauntlet. With my mind fairly in a daze, I rode at once to the castle and demanded to see Sir John. Looking like a fresh thunderstorm, Sir John greeted me with sour words. If you have come with the excuse of save your breath, Steenie, have you brought me the rent? No, sir, I have not. 
but have brought Sir Robert's receipt for it. But you told me only yesterday that he had not given you one. Well, Your Honor, please look at this bit of writing. Hmm. All right. Hmm. Looks like my father's hand, I must say. This 25th of November from my appointed place. But the 25th of November was yesterday. If you got this receipt, Steenie, you must have gone to Hades for it. I got it from your honor's father, sir. Whether he be in heaven or someplace else, I don't know. And besides, uh, Sir Robert sent a message to you. He said you were to look for the bag of silver at a catch cradle. I'm beginning to think you're either mad or a sorcerer. And I hope you recall it was only a month ago in the village when a sorcerer was burned at the stake. I admit I've a long, strange tale to tell, sir, but you'll only believe it if we do find that bag of silver at the catch cradle. Oh, I never heard such childish nonsense. I don't know any place around here by that name. Please, sir, ask old Hutchin. He knows things about the castle that everybody else has forgot. All right, all right. You rang, sir? Hutchin, do you know a place about the castle called the Cat's Cradle? Oh, yes, sir. It's a ruinous turret long out of use, next to the clock house. One can only get to it by a ladder, for the opening's on the outside. Hmm. It's many long years since I've heard anyone inquire about the Cat's Cradle. Thank you, Hutchin. Come along, Steenie. We'll go to the Cat's Cradle and see what we find. Just in case I need it, I think I'll take this pistol that was my father's. For what purpose, sir? It has silver bullets. And they say that silver bullets are the only kind effective against mad men and sorcerers. Come, Steenie. Yes, sir. I hope for your sake I find something up here, Steenie. What? What could that be? Oh, Sir John, that's your father's silver whistle. Come down, sir. Come down. I'm afraid you, well, you'll see that, sir. Nonsense. I'll find out for myself. There's uh, Red Gauntlet's pet monkey, Major Weir. Look. Look, Steenie. It's the monkey that's blowing the whistle. Be careful, Sir John. That monk can be mean, awful mean, sir. Oh, I can take care of myself. Give me that whistle, you little ape. Watch out. The monk will stretch your eyes out. Get away from me. You Get away. Get away. Can you see inside the turret now? Too bad I had to shoot him. Yes. Yes, now find the bag of silver, Steenie. Here, here, catch it. Huh. A little thief of an ape. He stole the bag and hid it there. Now watch out. I'm coming down. Uh, oh, that turret's full of the junk the monkey stole. I'll have Hutchin clean it out. Well, Sir John, I guess you'll have to believe I'm not a liar now. Yes, we've solved the mystery of the missing bag of silver. Perhaps another mystery. I believe it's the monkey that blew the silver whistle those nights. Dougal thought it was my dead father. But we haven't solved the mystery of the receipt, Steenie. But I did talk to your father last night, and he gave me that receipt. For proof, didn't I deliver your father's message to go look at the cat's cradle for the bag of silver? Yes, Steenie, and I'm very worried. If this story gets out, uh, you know what the villagers will say. That you must have strange powers. That you must be a... A sorcerer. I know, Sir John. And I was also thinking. It wouldn't be to your credit of your good family's name for the story to get about where your father's gone. But I swear it wasn't in heaven that I found myself last night. Oh. I see what you mean, Steenie. Well, uh, shall we agree to uh, keep the secret just between us? Aye, Sir John, we'll keep it. Maybe we can tell it someday to our grandchildren... But they'll think they're mo so modern, they won't believe the story anyway.
to the story, The Feast of Red Gauntlet. Bellkeeper, toll the bell. Seventh Earl of Crichton, while entertaining King James I of England, guided the monarch to his bedchamber by igniting a parchment recording a $1,500,000 loan he had made to the king. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the dancing corpses. One of the strangest funeral rites in the world is carried on by the Kapsiki tribe of Africa. When a wealthy native of the tribe dies, he's prepared after death for the gay life a person of standing is expected to lead when he goes on into the next world. This is done by hoisting his corpse onto the shoulders of the village blacksmith. The cadaver is then given dancing lessons that last for hours. As a result, they are known as the dancing corpses, believe it or not. are back since we are already almost an hour uh, a half an hour over we are going to um add uh the strange doctor weird which i like an idiot forgot to play uh to the podcast edition of this program which you can find um uh shortly after the conclusion of this program uh, so first, real quick, what are you going to hear this week on Radio for Humans? First of all, tomorrow night, you will have from the bunk... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Scratch that. Uh, you will have Time for... Uh, Zombie Voodoo Boutique presents Time for Go to Bed with Kenny Pick and the Sues, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern, followed by From the Bunker immediately after that program. Then, Friday... Friday, 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 we've got It Came From Cleveland, where the Halloween festivities uh, continue. Saturday night, we have Paul's Memory Bank, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern. And then, of course, Sundays, we have uh, Second Chance Sundays, where you can hear all the fine pro original programming here on Radio for Humans. Uh, we'll have uh, Tim Cormall, uh Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at various times, and you can find those times by consulting our broadcast schedule at RadioForHumans.com. So there you go, uh, and we will definitely have a um, 
new mythical moment this coming uh, Friday on uh, It Came From Cleveland. So, always love doing those. Anyway, I think we can get rid of the music. Just give that a minute to fully fade out. We may have to we may have to adjust our fade out time just a skosh. We'll just make it uh I think we'll do ten minute ten second fade in. And the ten second fade out, we'll see how that works. Uh, but anyway, we are now to the tail end of our program, uh, where we're going to do our pod persons, pop people segment, um, and then we're going to wrap up the show. Just a reminder that you will be able to hear the episode six of the Strange Doctor Weird, um, uh, as part of the pod edition of this program. Uh, so make sure to check that out. You can check us out at uh, SoundCloud.com slash Radio for Humans, I think. Uh, SoundCloud.com slash Kenny-Pick. You can also find us at RadioForHumans.com where you can download our podcast every week. Um, so there is that and all the other fine pro podcast uh, original programming. And when I say original, I mean, you know, people who are directly affiliated with this network do. So that that is... Uh, Dread Time Stories, Time for Go to Bed, um, It Came from Cleveland, and um, Paul's Memory Bank. Uh, we don't release a podcast, Paul's Memory Bank. As for, if you ever wanted to, I would be more than happy to help him get set up on that. Paul, if you're listening, think about that. So there's that. Alright, so this week's pod person segment... Oh, right, I forgot to plug uh, our Patreon. You can find our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash studio underscore Hebert. Uh, it's not just for Dread Time Stories. It's basically to support me as a broadcaster. So basically, the more I get, the more content I can produce. The better content I can produce. Um, so basically, starting at $5 and up, and ba again, all the tiers except for, you know, starting at $5 have the same benefits. You're just saying, you know what, I believe in him enough to, to throw him $10 instead of 5 I, I didn't want to create, like, a, a very complicated um, reward scheme. So basically, you can you can support me for as little as a dollar, and of course, all my patrons will, once those... Once I get that first uh, check from Patreon, of course, I start cranking out bonus content for our $5, 10 and $15 uh, a month patrons. Um, and we'll, we'll add a portion to the show for thanks for all of our patrons. So, hey, um, if you, you know, maybe we'll figure out, maybe we'll add um, customized shoutouts for people at, I don't know, $10, $15 levels. I don't know. Uh, that's but anyway, uh, so please consider that again. Um, you would be supporting an independent, you know, a broadcaster who, you know, ref I, I want to remain independent. Um, Kenny Pick allows me basically almost unlimited, um, artistic freedom, provided I don't swear while doing it. 
uh, <laughs> and that that's more of like um you know it's not a hard rule but it's a it's a principle of Kenny's I respect and uh, he's generous enough to give me this platform so I respect his desire for family friendly programming um but um again once I get that first five dollar um five dollar patron or more I start producing uh, bonus content uh, so basically at first it will be um, one month will be a bonus episode of Droid Time Stories which will not include our serials so anything that's like a serial so Magnus Archive, Strange Doctor Weird stuff like that that will not be a part of uh, our bonus episodes uh, we'll figure something out once I have to start figuring that out then the next month will be podcast tutorials. I will help you learn how to podcast, how to broadcast. I will teach you everything I know, or well, as much you know, as long as I get the money, you know, as long as I get, you know, we have patrons. I will, you know, every other month, I will uh, do another p tutorial about how you can do a podcast. There'll be equipment, setup, programs to use, you know, stuff like that. And then once, uh, I believe, once we get to the $100 a month level total, not just for one person, but a total $100 a month, that becomes two bonus episodes a month. So every other week. And then at $200 uh, a month, that would be uh, weekly bonus content. And so, yeah, you know, again, all you have to, you know, all you have to do to get this bonus content, $5 a month. That's it. If you, you know, and, and I would like to stress that while I'm not going to AWA this year due to, you know, again, it is due to lack of money. So you will also be helping to, uh, you know, for extra stuff. You know, I, I've interviewed Steve Bloom, Gray Delisle. I've uh, Stephanie Shea, Michael Sinternikloss, great voice actors. Uh, and I will say uh, of all the people I've interviewed, and I'd say I've interviewed probably about, 20 Steve Bloom, Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, and um, Gray Delisle are, are, you know, the ones I'm most proud of. And that's not to denigrate anyone I've interviewed, they're all wonderful people. It's just that Miles, Miles and Michelle will tell you I was convinced I wasn't going to get that interview with Steve Bloom. I told him point blank, I missed the, the, de you know, I missed the window, you know, the opening of requests by, an, by like four hours because I was at work and I told him I said there's no way Steve Bloom is a big is a big name and everyone would have requested all the slots and boy was I wrong so there you have it so again you want do you want interviews and audio from Anime Week in Atlanta next year it's a great reason to support this program well to support Studio Hebert uh, because every dollar that you know every dollar helps um just going, just committing to going to the, to the anime con requires about seven hundred dollars. Dead serious. Between um, hotel costs and transportation, those two bills alone, minimum seven hundred dollars. So again, every little bit helps. So please consider supporting us at Patreon. Anyway. Off to our pod people segment. This week we're doing another ParCast original. 
And I'm not going to go into huge details about my issues. Again, I explained that, that all with my, you know, when we had mythical monsters. I do, I, my main issue is I don't like the fact that Powercast has basically restricted access to their product. I prefer to be able to download and listen and re-listen on my own terms. And when you take away that control, you risk losing me as a customer. And unfortunately, Parcast has lost me as a customer at this point. Um, it's not that the quality of the, pro of the programs have decreased. It's that I have certain principles that I live by and, you know, there comes a point where I'm like, sorry guys, So, and also, I don't think the fumigation this afternoon helped. Anyway, here is the, um, this is the trailer for Haunted Places Ghost Stories from Parcast, now a Spotify original. To the Spotify original part. Spectres. Ghosts. Poltergeists. Restless spirits take on many forms. Every week on Haunted Places Ghost Stories, we explore petrifying tales from some of the most celebrated authors of all time, like Edith Nesbitt, Arthur Conan Doyle, and Bram Stoker, as well as cultural legends like the Chinese folktale The Ghost Who Was Foiled. In Haunted Places Ghost Stories, we bring you real-life context and immersive storytelling that will have you calling the Ghostbusters in no time. If you like the eerie locations explored on Haunted Places, then Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a must-add to your listening routine. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast, launching October 1st. Follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories and listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, and that was the trailer, of course, October 20th last year. Uh, <laughs> no, well, October whatever they they said. But um, you can find that on. And, of course, we'll have all these links in our show post, which I realized we did not do for one last week. So we will get that taken care of um, as, as soon as possible. Uh, all right, so we got to and, and I will say one thing about uh, Haunted Places Ghost Stories is that that is a program that when I, you know, that helped a lot of the authors from this first season and even some of the stories um, were put on my radar by Haunted Places Ghost Stories. In fact, we will eventually be doing the um, story you're about to hear. Uh, well, the excerpt from the episode, uh, the upper birth. Um, but anyway, here is the. Uh, uh, excerpt from and this was the last episode uh, they released off of Spotify so this is a relatively recent episode about two months old The Upper Birth When I first stepped aboard the Kamchatka in New York a steward materialized from nowhere Robert was a pale fellow with a wispy red beard creeping along his chin. I offered him a crisp bill as payment to bring me to my room 
so he promptly collected my belongings and asked me where we were headed. Now, the Kamchatka is one of my preferred ships when crossing the pond, as most of the cabins are double-sized and for a good price, and so I gave Robert the number of one such room, cabin 105. I was tired, so I'll admit I was a bit brusque when I spoke, but based on Robert's reaction alone, one would have thought I had slapped the poor fellow. His face drained of color, and his eyes went wide as if in shock. I worried that he would faint, but instead, he repeated the cabin number back to me with a quiver in his voice and asked me if I was certain. I wasn't sure if he'd failed to clean it or perhaps the room was double booked, but I was exhausted and in no mood to make rearrangements, so I simply nodded and said, be quick about it. We did not speak as we made our way below deck, which suited me fine. There was plenty of noise to fill the air around us. Tourists milled about, gawking out the portholes while the stewards hauled luggage and sailors shared stories. As we arrived at the door to my cabin, the lights of the ship dimmed softly, and I heard the slight groan and thrum of the engines. We were shoving off through the Hudson Bay, heading toward Fire Island. So began the week-long journey to London once again. I sighed, exhausted. Well, go on, open it, I said to Robert. He obliged, his hand shaking as he held the door open, but he refused to step foot any further. I paid him no mind and entered the room myself. Alright, I admit, that was kind of an abrupt end to the excerpt. I could have done a bit more, but oh well. Anyway, we're going to wrap up the show. Don't forget that as soon as I finish talking and the, ex and the music uh, stops, you will uh, we will immediately cut back and do the Strange Doctor Weird. So again, thank you everyone, everyone very much for listening. I have not decided what our um, final regular episode for the first season of Dread Time Stories will be. Um, but don't forget, Sunday, October 31st, we will be doing um, a special. I will have details for that next, hopefully next Wednesday, next Friday at the latest on uh, It Came From Cleveland. Uh, but there you have it. Uh, so again, thank you everyone for listening. Please don't forget, tune back in next week. And until next time, dear listeners, unpleasant dreams Oh whoa 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 Hold on Sorry I forgot to mention all incidental music heard all incidental music heard on this program is probably courtesy of tabletopaudio.com tabletop audio royalty free uh what royal <laughs> all right uh tabletopaudio.com royalty free music for your podcast where you podcast work or play dungeons and dragons again everyone have a great week we'll see you next next wednesday for Again, the final episode of our first season. Um, 
expect an announcement about the future of this program. Again, I fully intend to continue doing it as long as Kenny allows me to. Uh, but we might be uh, making some changes. I don't know. Because I, I can think of like two times where we've ended this program on, on time. So um, maybe it's time to consider just biting the bullet making making this a um, a, a three-hour program. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Let's end this program now that we got that done. Again, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Enjoy the podcast edition of the program, uh, which will be available sometime this evening before I go to bed. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the program, and don't forget to tune in next week. At ne- <clears throat> Sorry, <laughs> next Wednesday, starting at 7 p.m. for another edition of Dread Time Stories. Till next week, dear listeners. Unpleasant dreams. again dear listeners that's right if you are listening you are listening to this recording you're listening to the pot edition and that's good for you because we're going into overtime tonight that's right uh i didn't want to make the show any longer so i opted not to do the strange dr weird and so we're gonna get to that right now uh but first you know uh you're, you're tuning in. You're, you're taking a few minutes, a few more minutes out of your extremely busy day to listen. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your day to listen to my to this program, which I, I genuinely enjoy doing. Um, I, I love doing this program. I, you know... When I was doing Mike Check Radio, 
about a year and a half ago at the end I just I didn't care I'm gonna be brutally honest I didn't care I was you know like when I first started Mike Check Radio and Kenny Pick would, would tell you this if you ever asked him I was doing show prep during class after class at lunch between classes when I was tutoring kids at elementary school like I was religious when it came to my show prep I okay Mike Check Radio was a three hour long program I would probably put in six hours worth of show prep a week. Going through stories, collecting audio, editing audio, printing off notes and highlighting them. I was a broadcasting stud. But in the end, it was just like... I didn't care. And I think that's part of why there was such a breakdown with my friends. I just didn't care anymore. But now I have a project that I do care about. I really enjoy doing Dread Time stories. I enjoy bringing these stories to you. I enjoy bringing this old time radio to you. And I really appreciate that you listen to me. So again, dear listeners, thank you very much. From the bottom of my heart. Um... I have a project I, I genuinely care about. You know, this makes me feel the way Mike Check Radio did when I first started. And this is the sort of show that I don't think I'm ever going to get burned out on. I might take a break. Everyone needs a break. But with Mike Check Radio, I always fought taking breaks because, especially during the Trump years, you know, it was like, what is this guy gonna do next? You know, you've seen the meme where it's like you wake up every morning, they've got uh, Jean-Luc Picard, Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. Damage report. So that was, that was what it was like. And so it was like, guys, we can't do an old nerd talk show. He just started a nuke North Korea. Oh, well, I could probably... So, yeah, burnout. Burnout's a killer. I don't think I'm going to get burnt out on this. Uh, I would hope I don't get burnt out on this. And even if I do, my goal is eventually to have several other projects lined up and ready to go. So that if I do ever feel like I'm getting burnt out on this, boom. I got another project in the wind. Anywho, we're going to get to uh, episode, I believe this is episode 6 of the Strange Doctor Weird. Uh, that is uh, boo, 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 uh, The Strange Doctor Weird from December 12th, 1944. The Man Who Talked With Death. This will be fun. So, again, thank you very much for joining me for this extra um, uh, overtime on the podcast edition. Um, and I will catch you on the flip side for a brief outro.
Adam Hatz presents... The Strange Dr. Weird. Good evening. Come in, won't you? Why, what's the matter? Surely you're not nervous. Perhaps it will calm you if I tell you a story. It's a rather odd story. About a rather odd individual. You see, he was a morgue keeper. I call his story, The Man Who Talked With Death. My story, The Man Who Talked With Death, begins in the city morgue on a raw autumn evening. Two men have just entered the badly lighted basement of the gloomy stone building. Uh, what is a cold wind here or outside? Uh, where's Pop Hansen? I want to get my pictures and get out of here. This place gives me the creeps. All Pops are on someplace. He probably... Hey, isn't that him? Talk to somebody down there by the ice boxes where they keep us stiffs? Yeah, why, well, there's nobody there. Pop's talking to himself. Unless he's talking to a ghost. Come on. Yes, there is some place else you go on to, but it's not a place you have to be frightened or believe me. Now it's time for you to go. Goodbye, Jean. Goodbye. Hey, Pop. Oh, hello, boys. I didn't hear you come in. Hmm. Say, Pop, who are you just talking to? Oh, that was Jean Williams. She came in last night. What do you mean, she came in last night? I mean her body was brought in. Here, I I'll show you. There she is. So young and so pretty. No wonder she was frightened when she found she was dead. You say you were talking to her? Why, yes, Harry. You see, when you die, a part of you goes on to someplace else. But it always stays near its body for a while till it gets used to things. It was that, Jean Williams, I was just talking to, of course. Pop, you've been working down here among these stiffs too long. You mean I just imagine I talk to them and they talk to me? <laughs> no, Tom, it's really true. Someday you'll know I'm telling the truth. Well, maybe. Let's can the chatter. We want to get the picture of John Wainwright. Wainwright? Yes, they brought him in last night. Everybody who dies a violent death comes here for old Pop to talk to him. Yeah, here he is. Okay, Harry, get yourself a couple of pictures and we'll be gone. Yeah, it won't take a minute. I sure would like to know who killed Wainwright. The killer didn't leave a clue. Why, it was that young Professor Higgins who shot oh. Wainwright, Tom. Higgins? The pride and joy of the city university? How'd you know? Wainwright told me so himself. Wainwright told you? What are you giving me? It's true. You see, he was a blackmailer and he was blackmailing Higgins' wife. Professor Higgins had to kill him to save her. Wainwright told me so just before he left a little while ago. But Wainwright's dead. There's his body right there in the icebox. I know. I explained about that. Oh, you're crazy. But I'm not, Tom. Wainwright even told me that the gun Professor Higgins used is hidden now in the left-hand bottom drawer of the professor's desk in his home out at the university. Okay, Tom, we can scram now. Just a second. Pop, I don't know where you got your tip, but I'm going to look into this. Oh, no. You mustn't. You see, Tom, the things that the dead tell me, they can't be used in any way by the living. It's too dangerous to the living. They just can't be used. Well, this can if it's true. If Higgins killed Wainwright, and I can prove it, 
Boy, what a story it'll make. No, Tom, you mustn't try to prove it. It'll do you no good. Try and stop me. Come on, Harry. Now, thanks very much, Dean. Goodbye. There you are, gentlemen. You've just talked to the dean himself on the phone, and he's told you I was playing cards at his home at 11 o'clock last night. Does that satisfy you? Yes, Professor Higgins. Wainwright, Wainwright was shot at 11, so the alibi lets you out. Who in the world ever suggested that it was I who shot Mr. Wainwright? <laughs> Nobody in the world, Professor. It was a ghost. Wainwright's ghost. I'm afraid I don't understand. Oh, it's just a gag, Professor. Thanks. Come on, Harry. Let's get back to town. Goose Chase. You don't mean you really believe that crazy stuff Pop told us about talking to Wainwright ghost? No, of course not. But I thought maybe Pop knew something and was trying to give us a tip without admitting it. Say, wait a bit. Huh? What is it? Higgins is a smart guy. Maybe that alibi was fake. Oh, now, Tom. Pop said the murder gun was hidden in Higgins' desk. I think we ought to go back and search that desk. Oh, but that's crazy. Hey! Hey, Tom, what are you doing? Just putting on the brakes. I'm going to turn around and go back. Yeah, but the road's all wet here. Hey, Tom, we're skidding. I'll get us out of it. Yeah, there's a hundred-foot drop into the gully there. Hey, look out. Look out, Tom, we're going over. Jump, jump. While my pimples go away and we all wait to learn what happens next, I'd uh, like to ask Dr. Weird a question. Yes, yes, young man. I'm all ears. <laughs> well, point them the other way, please. And answer me this. One of our listeners wants to know why you're on the air only 15 minutes instead of a half hour. If we can scare people half to death in 15 minutes, why take twice as long? <laughs> Very logical, Doctor. The Adam Hat people use similar logic in their business. Take the famous Adam 5, just for instance. Their feeling is, if we can deliver real hat quality for $5, why charge twice as much? And so on with Adam hats in every price range. Every Adam hat might well sell for more. Master craftsmen design every Adam style. Up to the minute in fashion, correct in the best of good taste. Stroll into the nearest Adam hat store and look around a bit. Try on a few that strike your fancy. You'll find perfect fit, perfect style, and perfect price. And Adam does something for a man. Now... Dr. Weird. Now I'll continue my story of the man who talked with death. It's a few moments after the crash, and Tom and Harry are picking themselves off the ground on the very edge of the deep gully into which their car has just plunged. Harry! Harry, where are you? Over here. I'm just making sure I'm all in one piece. How about you? I'm all right, I guess. It's a miracle we weren't both killed. Look at the car down there. Folded up like an accordion. Yeah, I got the car door open. I saw we were going over and must have both been thrown clear, but now what are we going to do? We're going back to the university. And we're going to get into Higgins' office and see if the murder gun is really there in his desk. Uh, Pop was just talking nonsense when he said we'd find it there, Tom. Maybe and maybe not. I don't believe in his little conversations with ghosts, but I do believe he knows something. And if he does, I'm going to crack this case. Yeah. 
short time later, Tom and Harry reached Professor Higgins' residence again and gained entrance to his office unseen through an open window. Okay, here's the desk. Which drawer did Pop say? In the bottom left-hand one. Uh, this is the one, then. And it's open. And there is a gun here. Look. Yeah. Forty-five automatic. And Pop was right. You bet he was. And he was also right when he said Professor Higgins shot Wainwright. Higgins faked his alibi. Here, I'll get the gun out with no, you. No, don't touch it. The cops will have to find the gun here in this desk to be convinced it really belongs to Higgins. Yeah, of course. Then let's call him and get him out here. No, no, not yet. We're going back to the morgue and ask Pop a few questions. Back to the morgue? Hey, Tom, listen. You suppose Wainwright really could have told Pop all this after he was dead? Of course not. That stuff of talking to the stiffs is a lot of malarkey. Pop knows something, and he's hiding it. We're going to find out what he knows and how, and then we're going to break the biggest story this town has ever seen. Slipping away in the darkness, Tom and Harry tried vainly to thumb a ride back to the city. In the end, they had to walk the whole distance. And it was well after midnight when they once more stood outside the cold, gray morgue building. Oh, what a night. I've walked so far in my life. Hey, why do you suppose those drivers wouldn't stop and give us a lift? I don't know. I guess they're afraid of a stick-up. Well, let's get inside and give Pop the old third degree. Yeah, wish we didn't have to. And I hate to go in there again, Tom. This place upset me. Oh, come on. We're the lucky ones. We can walk out again. Hey, somebody's left the door open. Come on in. Tom. Tom, I'm frightened. I don't want to go in there where they keep the bodies. I, I just don't want to. Oh, you're acting like a kid. Now, come on. There's Pop over there by the iceboxes. Oh, Pop! Oh, hello, boys. I've been kind of expecting to see you, too. Pop, we want to ask you some questions. Tom, you went out to talk to Professor Higgins, didn't you? And I asked him not to. I told you it wouldn't do you any good, not any good at all. Oh, but it did. We found the gun just where you said it to be. Boy, what a story this town's going to read tomorrow morning. Oh, they'll never read it. The Wainwright shooting's never going to be cleared up. It's always going to be a mystery. It has to be that way. <laughs> like fun it does. Pop, how'd you know about Higgins and that gun? Don't you realize yet I was telling you the truth? That Wainwright himself told me after they brought his body here? Tom, I think Pop's telling the truth. Well, you may be crazy, but I'm not. Now, Pop, come clean. I should never have told you, Tom. That caused all your trouble. I'm sorry, Tom. I'm awful sorry, but I warned you not to go, remember? If you hadn't, it would never have happened. What are you talking about? What would never have happened? Huh? I think I know what Pop means. I think I know. Sure you do, Harry. Tom will understand in a minute, too. Look, Tom. Look here. Uh, two bodies badly smashed up. Well, so what? Tom, don't you know now? It's true. Pop really can talk to the dead. He really can. That's why he can talk to us. Harry, get a hold of yourself. What's the matter with you? Tom, those two bodies, they're ours. We're both dead. We were killed when our car crashed into that ravine. So Pop could talk to the dead after all. At least Tom and Harry found the proof. Very convincing. But if you find it hard to believe, why not drop in at the morgue and see for yourself? Of course, you'd have to go there as a dead body 
But uh, we could easily arrange that. And... Oh, you're leaving now. Well, perhaps you'll drop in again soon. I'm always home. Just look for the house on the other side of the cemetery. The house of Dr. Weird. Is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ridley's. Believe it or not. <laughs> Duncan McIntyre, the greatest poet of the Scottish Highlands, whose literary magnitude has been compared to Robert Burns, could neither read nor write, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a strange 14th century vigil. A bed has been kept ready for the arrival of a guest for more than 1,400 years. A monk named Pao Chi died in the year 514 in the Memorial Temple of Hangzhou, China. His last words were, I shall return. Apparently, Pao Chi's fellow monks took him at his word because they've changed the linen on Pao Chi's bed more than 57 million times over the last 14 centuries. Believe it or not. All right, and that just about wraps it up for this. I, I will say um, <clears throat> one thing I'd like to start doing on occasion is recommending audiobooks. Um, and I will say I'm going to start with uh, uh, recommending the, um, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy as read by... Um, oh, damn, what's his name? The guy who voiced Gollum. Uh -huh. Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis' reading of The Hobbit, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and um, what's the Return of the King are brilliant. And since I've been listening to them, I've also been watching the extended uh, editions of Lord of the Rings movies, and I, I will say they are modern masterpieces. They, those three are I mean, don't get me wrong, they're long but they're beautiful films. They are brilliant films, and 
it was just so sad when I went to watch the Hobbit movies and you could tell Peter Jackson was phoning it in. We can get rid of that music. You know, he, he didn't want to be there. He, he moved on. And don't get me wrong. I, I, I fully understand the idea of wanting to move on. H how do you beat Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings? You don't. I mean, he was, I mean, no matter how good Peter Jackson did, people are always going to com compare it most likely unfavorably to Lord the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, you know, I, I would have loved, you know, one of the reasons why I would have loved to see Guillermo del Toro's version of, of The Hobbit is, uh, first of all, he's a brilliant director. Love Guillermo del Toro. Um, but I think that if he'd done a really great version of The Hobbit, and don't get me wrong, he would have, without a doubt. Um, we might have been able to see his vision of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Now, here's a little thing about Mount At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, Guillermo del Toro has a script ready, um, but no one will finance this film. Do you know why? Because it doesn't have a love story. That is the reason they gave Guillermo del Toro one of the best horror film, film you know, horror directors of all time for not doing at for not helping him create at the mountains of madness it doesn't have have they not read hp lovecraft sorry guys lovecraft was not a lovey-dovey kind of dude uh <laughs> uh so I, I i always you know like when i think about that it, it's like really that's that's the deal breaker no love story um and they also insisted on Tom Cruise being in it. It's like, no, no, no. So, uh, and I would also like the, to um, recommend Elvira, uh, Cassandra Peterson's new book, which is basically her, her biography, her memoirs. Um, Yours Cruelly, Elvira, Memoirs of the Mistress of the Dark by Cassandra Peterson. Read by Cassandra Peterson. Um, I I'm a fan of Elvira. Again, there's a reason why I sign off every program with, uh, well, I joke, you know, I, I I know, and don't get me wrong, people. If you pointed out that I, you know, yes, I'm well aware of the fact that Elvira called herself yours cruelly and signed off with unpleasant dreams. I'm not stupid enough to think I came up with this. So please don't don't complain. But uh, it's an excellent book, an eye-opener, and like I said, I haven't dealt with a tenth of the stuff she has, and I'm kind of a depressing dude. I'm a dour person. <laughs> Can you imagine how bad I would be if I dealt with more stuff like she had? But, uh, yeah, I recommend uh, Yours Cruelly, Elvira, Memoirs of the Mistress of the Dark, as well as Andy Serkis's readings of The Hobbit, Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and Return of the King. They are, they, these are all great. And that's the things that what I hear is important to me, and that's one of the reasons why I got into old-time radio as a hobby. Um, what I hear is important to me. Soundtracks are important. There are video games out there that I love, that I've never been able to finish because the soundtracks were bad or the dubbing was bad. 
in the case of the original Persona game, Persona, the Persona series, Shin Megami Tensei, um, I would say I probably um, have more, you know, enjoy Final Fantasy a bit more. But the original Persona is one of my all-time favorite games, but I couldn't finish it because the dubbing was so bad. It had a cast of three. Three! One for men, one for women, one for everyone else. Everything else. Made no sense. No sense whatsoever. And I'm so glad Atlas pulled their head out of their behinds. I almost said another naughty word. Anyway, so, again, don't forget, next Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, um, I'll have a show announcement soon. Um, we'll have announcements about our um, Halloween night spooktacular and all sorts of other stuff. Until next week, dear listeners. Sorry. <laughs> Until next week, my dear listeners, this is yours cruelly saying unpleasant dreams <laughs> <laughs>